Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 82 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host of the show, Matt Feuerstein, and joined for the first time, the crossover continues. He is the co-host of an honorable mention, the other Ring of Honor podcast, the podcast that started a little bit after us, yet has a million more episodes because the people that do that show have something called work ethic. Uh... You, we were just on their show, Jeff Schwartz. Now, welcome to our show. I hope you're not disappointed. I'm I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It is uh, it is long overdue. We're so excited to have you on. Um, as as you know, we told you on your show, we love your show. Um, uh, we want everybody to listen to it. And if you have for some silly reason, listeners, not listen to an honorable mention, hopefully after you hear this, you will run right over and download every episode because it is the best. Absolutely. But um, you're too kind. (laughs) We're too kind to everyone but ourselves, probably. But uh, (laughs) um, obviously some sad news happened between the last show and this show. And I, I think I said this the last time one of these deaths happened, which was the nice thing about doing a Ring of Honor podcast was supposed to be that we didn't have to cover wrestler deaths and in the last year plus we've had that we you know brody lee has died xavier's passed away and of course now jimmy rave has passed away um i mean people who listen to the show every episode uh through the years know that we like jimmy rave i mean he's a he's a talent he was a test we were talking about him in the best past tense was a very talented guy i mean we're covering his career in ring of honor and we'll continue to do so uh, obviously it's a tragic, it's a, it's a tragedy. Pastor wasn't even 40 yet. Um, I wrote this online, but I think the biggest tragedy with Jimmy, other than just the obvious, they leaves behind uh, family, children, um, friends who cared about him was that's a guy who had, a. Uh, you know, there are people in wrestling that, you know, they're good in the ring, but they don't really have anything else to offer the business. And that's fine. You know, that's most of them. But, but Jimmy Ray was a guy from, Everywhere you heard, this was a guy that, like, he should have had a job the rest of his life in wrestling, no matter what, because, you know, so many people before his death and now even and now, especially after his death, coming out with stories about, like, you know, Jimmy Rave, you know, he gave me so much advice. He really schooled me. He, um, you know, I, I've seen multiple like fans, like guys like Dylan Hales, who used to be just a big podcaster who's now like works booking wrestling and announcing like on the indie level saying like, oh, Jimmy Rave was the first wrestler who treated me as a fan, like an equal, you know, like, like n- not lesser than them. And the multiple fans I saw online said stuff like that. And, he just, that that's a guy that should have been you know working backstage at wrestling until he was 80 and uh you know it, it's a tragedy for his family it's a tragedy for the wrestling business and uh we don't know his cause of death but i know in the statement released by bill barons that was co-authored by uh, one of jimmy's kids they mentioned obviously people that have been following jimmy rave have known that his um it's been a really rough year for him. He he lost his uh one of his arms and both of his legs had to be amputated. And in the statement, they said that was due to uh, his long battles with drug addiction, which, of course, he had also been pretty public about at different points in his life, talking about that. And uh, I, I would just say to anybody, if there's any good that can come of this, I think, like, just don't be ashamed of getting help. There's no shame in having an addiction. And I know he tried to fight it, but I, I I'll just say like, 
if this could influence anybody to, you know, maybe try, you know, if, if you're letting this linger, you know, don't, you know, and don't be ashamed because there's a ton of people that, you know, that are going to be in your corner. And, uh, yeah, I don't have a very elegant way to say this, obviously, but yeah. Um, Matt, and I know Jeff, I know you'll probably have a lot to say on, on, um, an honorable mention. And obviously for people that have not listened, we reference this a lot because Jimmy Rave was one of the only wrestlers of the ring of honor era we're covering that really did some long form interviews about his whole career already. And so we reference them a lot, but anyone go back and listen to the two parter on an honorable mention of Jimmy Rave, where he really goes in depth about his entire career. It, it, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of, obviously if you're listening to this show, you're a fan of this era of Ring of Honor. So if, if, if you're a fan of that, he goes through a lot of stuff, has some really good stories. Um, I'm Jeff. Um, we'll go through it in a second, but Matt has the coast. Uh, do you have anything to say about obviously Jimmy Rave tragedy that, that he's gone now? Um, you know, when I heard this, I was probably sadder than I've been about any wrestler death in a really long time. I mean, at least since, you know, Brody Lee a year ago. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, we are living with Jimmy Rave on our podcast. You know, I mean, the thing, the, the Jimmy Rave that I know the most is the Jimmy Rave from the mid 2000s in Ring of Honor. Uh, those are the, you know, that's those, you know, I would go to those shows. I would see the fan interactions with Jimmy Rave, which was among the most notable of the era. Um, I'd say 2005, 2006 was really his peak in terms of fame in the wrestling business. Um, you know, between what he did in ROH and his uh, tag team with, uh, you know, Lance Archer in TNA. Um, but, you know, I mean, just in terms of his, his output in the ring and, and his, his character work, you know, 2005 was such a breakout year for him. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we, people talk about his feud with AJ Styles, but it was that CM Punk feud, especially that was, might have been the, you know, one of the best things ROH did all year, especially the, the latter stages of that feud, the, the two big climax matches, the, the, the dog collar match in New York, and then, of course, the cage match in Chicago, which, Trevor, you and I both picked when we were on, um, Alan Cunahan's, uh, torch show for, memorable CM Punk matches from the yeah. 2000s, right? We both picked the cage match with Jimmy Rave. I'd say even now we're watching in, uh, you know, we're up to October 2005. That's still on the short list of best matches of the year for ROH. I mean, I don't know where you would rank it. It's easily in my top 10, maybe even top five at this point um, as far as what we've watched. It's such a great match. So his character work was incredible at this point, but his wrestling was really good too. And, um, you know, even on this show, we'll get to see some of the real fun stuff he did in the ring. Um, so that's, that's the Jimmy Rave I remember. He was just such an underrated professional wrestler that I think could have been a big star in, you know, a different time, different context. If a, if a major company wanted to take a chance on him, which unfortunately they never really did. And obviously I know he had his personal issues as well that might have, you know, put a, put a hindrance on his ability to do that too. But, you know, who knows what the counterfactual would be? He was, a really, a really, really talented guy, like really talented, you know, even beyond all the extra stuff that you mentioned about people, you know, behind the scenes, what a good guy he was just as a performer, super talented, yeah. un, super underrated. And, you know, hopefully if there's even like a tiny silver lining, it's that more people will discover him and realize what a, what a really good pro wrestler he was. Yeah. And Jeff, I mean, I, I know you probably have a lot of thoughts, probably a lot for your own show, but again, yeah. Um, he was on your show, and uh, I know this is probably a shock to you, you know, as much as anybody. I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
try and keep my emotions in check here. Um, you guys really said a, a lot that, that hit me in my heart about Jimmy and my relationship from a, a fan standpoint with Jimmy goes all the way back to 2000 when I got to see NWA Wildside on my television at two o'clock in the morning on Saturdays on whatever their syndication that they had was uh, called. It was like a network across America or something silly like that. So before even Ring of Honor had started, before WCW and ECW were, you know, dead in the water, um, I knew who Jimmy Rave was. And I knew how good he was as a babyface. Like, he was the original XTC, the original ecstasy, Jimmy Rave. Like, he had the silver pants and the, the whole deal and the, the, you know, the necklace that, like, Chris Hero and Samoa Joe would wear. Yeah. Uh, the Pacific Sunwear special. Uh, I had one. I think you know ninety percent of the people in wrestling at one point had one. Um, I bought mine because I saw Jimmy Rave wearing it, and I just thought it was the coolest looking thing I'd ever seen. And man, I was a hit as a freshman in high school. But uh, when I met Jimmy for the first time in two thousand five. He was doing the heel character, but a couple people vouched for me, and he let his guard down. And I would say ever since then, you know, he he was very protective of his character. But when he was able to put his guard down and just be, you know, quote-unquote James, uh, he was a lot of fun, and he was a really smart smart person topical you know about current events um he did great impressions of people aj in particular uh his aj styles impression is the single best um (laughs) uh, uh, that i've ever heard uh it's just this is such a loss and i go back to when larry sweeney passed away uh, I wrote down a list of people in wrestling that are not millionaires that I felt should be millionaires. And Jimmy Rave was on that list. Um, I'm, I'm not going to mention anybody else in particular whose names were on that list. But Jimmy Rave's name was near the top of that list. And I knew what he was dealing with and battling. But he was so good at being that smarmy heel. He never broke. And the one time that he came close to breaking was when he came back to ROH after the rock and rave infection uh, era in TNA was over with. And they did the tag with uh, Bison Smith and Jimmy as a mystery partner against Danielson and a mystery partner of his own. And, he talked. I think he talked about it on our show when he did our, the interview with Shane and I. Um, he was so happy coming through that curtain that it was like he almost broke just because he was smiling. And he had to grind his teeth to stop from smiling because he was so happy. And that whole run, he was on drugs. Yeah. The, whole, the whole run. And 
he was open about it then. Um, but just was too prideful to get help. And then when he finally did get help and work on getting himself clean, he actually paid it forward. Uh, kind of like he did with wrestling where he was a drug counselor for people. And he was giving his time into helping people that needed help just like he did. Um, and I think that's one of the great qualities that people don't know about Jimmy Rave is that he was such a giving person. Um, be it, you know, how he helped with counseling other addicts or how he helped train people. He's, you know, pretty much the sole trainer of Jordan Oliver, who I think we can, if you guys have seen him, he's one of the guys that is probably a part of the big future in wrestling. I mean, he's like 22 or 23 years old now. And Jimmy was one of his, if not his main trainer. Um, and when I see him wrestle, I see Jimmy Rave wrestle. Like, there are little things that he does that are exactly like Jimmy did. And Jimmy's going to be missed. Um, he's somebody that, you know, age aside, um, he should have been on television somewhere if he was healthy and uh, of sound mind and body. Um, he just should have been on television and he's so, he was so damn good. Uh, just maybe the most underrated heel of his era. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss my friend. Yeah. So again, uh, obviously, um, condolences to the family and the friends i don't know if any of them listen to our show but i do know that like even just tweeting like a, a little goofy gif of something that i thought jimmy did on this show which we'll talk about that made me laugh like it got some nice messages from people in jimmy's family and friends that said they appreciate which i did not expect and and uh so if anyone's happening to be listening doesn't know this that knows him just again our condolences and you know he was he entertained a lot of people so before we get to the show, uh, we just have the usual plug thing to inform people that, hey, we have three different ways to listen to the show. We have our own feed, which is just through the years, T-H-R-O-H. We have our feed that is part of the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. You want us with a bunch of other shows. And we're also, believe it or not, available on YouTube. Thousands of hours or at least hundreds of hours have been listened to by people there. It's not our main driver of listeners, but some people do listen there. So, Three ways to listen, and that brings us right to the show that we covered today. That would be Enter the Dragon, which took place October 14th, 2005, at Gray's Armory in Cleveland, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of 350 people. Now, that was on the low end of what Ring of Honor was drawing generally. This was also their very first show in a new market. They had never run Cleveland before, but it was interesting to kind of do the research for the show the PW Torch had a quote months and months before the show happened. They wrote, regarding Ring of Honor expanding to Detroit and Cleveland, Sapolsky, Gabe Sapolsky tells the Torch, we have gotten a lot of positive response from those cities. Detroit tickets are selling really well, and Cleveland has been strong. We expect both debuts to be huge shows, and we will make an impact in both markets. Now, obviously, things must have shifted, or Gabe must have been not telling the truth, or who knows what, because then the week before the show, uh, the PW Torch then reported this. 
Uh, Ring of Honor cut ticket prices for this weekend's Cleveland and Buffalo events in half for people who ordered online before October 11th. So second row tickets were just $15 and $17.50 respectively for the two shows. And general admission tickets were just $7.50. And, uh, but despite the low crowd, uh, the, you know, Ravar was at least list telling people that they were happy with the show because the observer wrote after the show, on the past weekend, they were happy with Cleveland since it was the first time in the market. While the crowd wasn't large, those who were there were hot, and the company loved the building, and they are hoping to build from that number. So I always say this. I can never get over how cheap it was to go to some of these Ring of Honor shows with the insane level of talent. I mean, what can you – I can't do anything these days entertainment-wise for $7.50. I mean, that's – a nutty price, and uh, well, well, I mean, Tre- well, Trevor. I was just talking. You told you a couple weeks, a couple of shows ago about how it cost me twenty five dollars to see Joe versus Kobashi, which <laughs> which sounds crazy now. But uh, Je- I was actually curious for Jeff. Um, so, like, did you expect any different from when ROH debuted in Cleveland? Like, as a northeastern Ohio guy, like, did you expect them to do better business than they did? Did you expect them to do worse? Like, did what did you think of the building? So. First of all, the 350 number seems way lower than I remember. Um, Hagedorn always refers to this building as the haunted schoolhouse. <laughs> and truth be told, like, and I'll, I'll I'll get you guys the picture I took outside of the Gray's Armory. Uh, actually, it was maybe like late January, early February of 2020. Um I was up there for a Cavs game. It's it's in the central area of downtown. You have Progressive Field uh, where the Guardians play baseball, and then you have the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse where the Cavs play basketball. And then the Gray's Armory is kind of right down the street um, as you keep going toward downtown. A lot of businesses and nightclubs and restaurants and stuff in that whole area. So it's the perfect location in downtown Cleveland. It's the heart of downtown um, Alice Cooper actually had a restaurant right up the street called Cooperstown uh, with a baseball theme for some reason, in spite of being Alice Cooper. Um, but I love the building. Uh, good parking. Uh, I think, you know, had the crowd been a little larger uh, the first time through, you could have opened up the upstairs, which would have been interesting. Um, but one of the the things I wanted to note before the show itself, um, one of the restaurants, not Alice Cooper's Town, because uh, they would not hold an area for us, but uh, Panini's, which I think was a, is a national chain in the states, uh, or maybe at least just all over Ohio, uh, for sure. Um, we did like a fan gathering of sorts, similar to how New York would have fan gatherings because i wanted to have all these people that were coming into cleveland for the first time to really get the best of the city i'm very proud of where i'm from i love northeast ohio the only time i would ever consider living somewhere else is if you know they took me out of here feet first um but i have to give a thank you to carrie silkin prince nana nigel mcginnis bj whitmer jimmy jacobs and I know I'm missing a couple other people, but they all came down at like three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon to Panini's for food that was set up. 
That's awesome. So, um, I think I think Ring of Honor left a very good impression in Cleveland. Um, I will say, and and we'll talk about it during the show, I'm sure. But the local wrestling scene here was not great at the time. It wasn't strong um, as far as indies go. And one of the people in the front row, probably the loudest voice you hear all night uh, in the front row, the the gentleman in the suit, he he was the loudest voice in the in the room all night, and he happened to be a local wrestling promoter. Um, he since passed away. That was Chandler Biggins. Uh, of AIW and uh, there were a lot of a lot of the local guys were not happy Ring of Honor was coming into town so the guy doing the heckling all night was Chandler Biggins yes wow and it is not the last time that somebody from AIW would cause trouble at a Ring of Honor event <laughs> wow um yeah, I mean, uh, wait till till the uh, I guess it'd be in January for um, weekend of champions. Um, yeah, there there were people that you know, a super dragon is being dragged out to the the streets of Cleveland outside the building. Uh, there were some other people dragged out of the building that night from the local wrestling scene in Cleveland. So the war was on. You know, Ring of Honor was doing the old WWF thing where they would invade somebody else's territory and it wasn't kindly thought of wow wow so yeah for uh, people who have not seen this show there is one very loud heckler for uh you know i don't even know if heckler's the right word but you know they're making comments to the wrestlers doing a lot to the show that are very audible to the point where some of the wrestlers are outright acknowledging them and if you look at the reviews for this show, there are people that find this person very annoying. Like, and I had no idea that, you know, for those who don't know, Chandler Biggins was one of the promoters of AIW. They, um, another person that unfortunately passed away tragically far before their time. He used to be part of the, the AEW had a podcast. I believe they still do. The card is subject mm-hmm. to change. I think was the name of it. I used to listen to it. Um, yeah, I just, I had no idea that was Chandler Biggins so was the, the guy making those comments throughout the show that is that is wild but um heckling is actually how chandler got into the wrestling business um (laughs) so you know he he was always very nice to me and i i have nothing but nice things to say to him even if i thought he took things a little bit far you know during this show um chandler was a very nice man yeah, that that is shocking to me because, uh, yeah, he is one of those. You listen to the podcast, you know, he always seemed like a, a very nice, personable Man, guy. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't be a, a a person that would make loud comments at a wrestling show, but I just never would have put two and two together like that. Yeah, see, we're getting all kinds of scoops already. But by the way, just from yeah. as far as the building goes, for my part, I will say I thought it looked pretty cool. Like I think, like it, it had character, you know. Like I thought, like compared to some of the other places that they were going at the time, like I thought it it stood out. Like the colors in the background and stuff, like it was a unique looking building on video, and I liked it. And it's a good venue for pretty much every kind of combat sports where you're focused on a central area. Um, you know, be it a, a cage or a ring, you know, or a, a boxing ring. Um, there's no bad sight line. 
in the whole place. Um, the only problem I would say specifically, at least on the main floor where fans were allowed, uh, there's one bathroom. Ooh. And, you know, talent was using that bathroom. <laughs> oh, uh, God. There, there's an Austin Aries story that I think was from Generation Now, you, you know, a year later or so. Um, that I think is it's an all timer. Uh, that he he was in there with a friend of mine, and uh, they were they were sharing uh, a stall next to one another, and. He came out and said, oh, he just went to the bathroom next to the former Ring of Honor champ <laughs> and walked out. <laughs> he should have, you know, the only, he should have left an autograph on a piece of toilet paper and just slid it under the stall and just been like, you just, you just went number two next to number one. <laughs> and just walked away. And, uh, but that, that is amazing. But, uh, I don't know how we'll follow that, but we we open the, if you're watching the DVD, we open the show proper with uh, Dave Prezak in the ring, reminding us that uh, recently a new Ring of Honor World Champion was crowned, and he introduces him now. That's Brian Danielson, and of course, Ring of Honor on the last few champions have kind of made it into a tradition that the first show after a new World Champion is crowned, the next show opens that they're at least the next show that they're booked on because Danielson missed the last three shows is the, opens with them coming out and doing an in ring promo, which. You know, for Ring of Honor, they did not do in-ring promos very often, so this was kind of a special thing. Uh, Brian's new final countdown theme plays, but only for the only for the second time ever. And out he comes wearing a Top Gun Talwar t-shirt, which will get acknowledged in a second. Uh, the crowd chants Dragon for him. Brian keeps clearing his throat, just kind of comically, and then he says, Cleveland rocks. He's such a cornball. It's, it's adorable. Brian says, a lot of people think a champion should dress the part, but obviously he doesn't feel that. And he points out that he's wearing a Top Gun Talwar t-shirt, and he tells the fans that Top Gun Talwar is a Southern California wrestler that is fantastic. Brian, at this point, says that what really makes a champion is not how he dresses. It's how valuable his belt is. And he'd like to thank all the Ring of Honor champions that made this belt mean something before him. He thanks them one by one, even Xavier. But when he gets to Aries, the lights go out. Aries' old personal Jesus theme hits. So, Matt, after a couple shows, we were going, what's this a new theme he has? He's back to personal Jesus. Out comes Aries. Um, Aries congratulates Danielson on his world title win and says as much as he respects Brian, he has something on his shoulder that Aries wants that Aries has had once before. Aries says he ended the longest world title ring in Ring of Honor history, and now he's going to get to end the shortest. That gets a mix of applause and boos, so that was interesting. Some people were in favor of that idea, some weren't. Aries and Danielson shake hands, and Aries leaves, so short little interlude by Aries there. Danielson says there's a reason he can't let Aries win tonight, and that's because Aries wrestles for TNA now. This draws booze and a fuck TNA chant, but Brian quickly cuts them off. He tells him to stop, and he says TNA gives wrestlers and fans a viable option to WWE on television, which, you know, that actually gets the crowd cheering, so he turned them back around. Uh, Brian says he's not here to diss TNA. He's saying Aries being in TNA means he has other obligations, and the Ray of Honor title means something special to Brian. That it means that TV doesn't mean you're a good wrestler. It means that you can make money without being subservient to a billion-dollar wrestling corporation. This belt, the Ray of Honor World Title belt, means wrestling freedom, and Brian wants to make that last for as long as possible. 
At this point, we cut backstage to see Steve Carino, who is wondering why everyone is here so early. Uh, Colt Cabana is there. He wants to know where Steve was. Steve's like, oh, I thought the show started at 10. Uh, Colt says he was calling everyone, including CM Punk, trying to find out where Carino was. But couldn't contact Carino because Carino apparently changes his phone number all the time. At this point, Danielson is coming back, back into the little room curtained off backstage area after his promo was done. He walks by and Crino shakes his hand saying he thinks he's wrestling Brian for the title tonight. Uh, Crino is confused about this because Danielson and Colt then tell him, no, that, that match is tomorrow. Colt says that, uh, he and Crino have a big tag match tonight, actually, instead. Crino then remembers, he goes, oh yeah, it's me and Punk versus Jay Leaf on Samoa Joe. And Colt, of course, tells him, no, that was a match you were booked for seven months ago, which of course, longtime listeners or fans of Ring of Honor will know that was the match he was supposed to have that he ended up walking out of Ring of Honor on that show, which is the last show he was booked to be on before this one, and they ended up replacing his spot with Spanky. Uh, Crino then hears that his tag match tonight is against Loki and Homicide, and he gets pissed off. He says he thought Colt was ribbing him when he told him that, and that basically ends the promo. At least that we can hear. I will point out that much of this promo is inaudible because it's happening in a little curtained off part of the building. That's I guess the backstage area as the opening matches entrances music is just blaring over the PA. So as always with ring of honor production is a joy and you can't hear, I would say a good third to a half of what they are saying, but that recap was the gist as best as I could get from that promo. Um, Jeff, you know, like, uh, it, it's funny, Jeff, um, a, a lot of people, you know, like, I, I feel like this Brian's promo was kind of the few comments I've seen afterwards was a little bit divisive in the sense of like, that really did seem like Brian turned up to 11 where he is very self-deprecating. He's charming. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't admit this like real crazy, champion type aura like you know he, he some of the champions like when aries came out you know you're wearing a dress shirt you put on the sunglasses or when punk won the title he comes out with a suit he's dyed his hair a different color all this stuff you know brian comes out in a top gun tower shirt and is like joking about how he doesn't dress well like very brian but I, I, some people I know were like, oh, you know, he's not a championship material. But other people, you know, if you want a wrestler that is themselves turn up to 11, you know, Brian is doing just that, I would say, in this pro. He is very, very Brian Danielson. I, I actually don't think he was turned up to 11. I think he was just at his standard 9.5. Because <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is the most authentic Brian Danielson that there is. Like, he's just a... a I don't want to say he's like a nerd because he's not, but like he's he's just comfortable in being himself like and he's goofy and he's unique. And I mean, I think even on TV today, when you see him doing something, even if it's like a serious thing. Uh, like when he wrestled John Silver and he's like twisting Silver's knee and like working, working the leg and like kicks him really hard. And he's got that mean scowl on his face. You can still see the goofy smile behind that scowl. He's yeah. a real, he's real. That's what makes him so good aside from his wrestling. So when he came out here to do this promo, He's basically, he's got the ability to make the monkeys dance. 
uh, you know, he goes from, well, uh, you know, we can't have Ares win the belt. He works for the enemy. He works for TNA. Oh, and then the crowd goes, you know, boo, you know, fuck TNA, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, well, but they're an alternative to the real enemy, WWE. Yay! Yeah. And that's that's Brian. He understands crowd psychology so well. And I think he does things sometimes. And even now, I know at WWE he did it. But even now at, at AEW, it, it's just he has this amazing, unique ability to read an audience to play with their emotions and never come out looking worse for it. He he has the the oversized pants on, these, you know, regular shoes. He doesn't look fancy. He's got the uh the the like not a bowl cut, but like a, a very simple haircut. <laughs> you know, there's nothing extravagant or, you know, over the top about him. And except for that Ring of Honor world title belt, that's the only thing. And that's all that matters for Brian Danielson is the belt. And he's right when he says that the Ring of Honor title belt means wrestling freedom. I thought that quote, you know, it harkens back to the punk uh, post-match promo at World Title Classic in Dayton when he beat Joe or when Joe beat him. And then they gave everybody that triangle-shaped medieval Ring of Honor world title that never saw the light of day ever again, thank God. (laughs) Um, But Brian's got that belt, and that belt is what matters more than anything. And I thought Aries came off well here as well, uh, just in the sense that he is now coming after the title that was taken from him by Punk. He feels shortchanged. Uh... And he is taking away his focus from their feud with the embassy for the for his shot at redemption. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out in the main event. Um, as far as the Carino promo, that area, the backs, that is the backstage area. If you notice, the Jimmy Rave robe is laying on one of the chairs uh, to the left. And that's where Jimmy sat most of the night, if I remember correctly. Um but that that robe was sitting there. Uh, Matt Stryker was standing in the background. Yeah, you could just see wrestlers at different points. I think. Yeah, just Tony Mamaluke yeah. came up and shook Carino's hand. Like <laughs> there were all these little things that were just thrown in there as like you know little um, red herrings. I guess not red herring, but like uh, you know little inside jokes. I guess for the night. And I just think Steve Carino is magical in how he delivers everything here. And, um, if you guys don't mind when we do that match later, I I would love to, to do the patented Steve Carino, Brian Regal intro. Of of course. Uh, Matt, what did you think about, uh, all this? Obviously, you know, Brian's basically his introduction as champion. Yeah. I mean, Brian, you know, I, like I said, at that point, he had still not gotten the reputation of being good at promos. And, you know, to this day, he says that he wasn't good at promos back then. Again, you know, we can, we can disagree. Like, 
I think. Uh, but you know, he was he was finding his character. But you could still, like Jeff said, see like, oh, that's Brian Danielson. You know, like some of the stuff that you know he became famous for doing, like the you know the clearing his throat before he started talking thing, like to an excessive amount. Like that was something that he did here. I don't remember hearing him do that in ROH before that, so that was like a new thing. Um, he also like you know he was self deprecating about his fashion sense. I will say this. Over time, Brian Danielson's fashion sense improved a lot. Like he, he's a he's a good dresser, and like he, I, you know, maybe you can uh, attribute that to his wife. But I think even before he met her, he was dressing better. So like I think that, you know, I don't know. I guess it was just a maturity thing. But I did think, you know, even though this wasn't like all time great promo, like you know, it was he's such a likable character, and it was a good mission statement. You know, talking about how. You know, the belt means that TV doesn't mean you're a good wrestler, which is, you know, that's what ROH is all about, right? That's, that's what ROH, like, represents, that you can be a great wrestler and not be on TV. And, you know, the ROH fans back then were like, yeah, these are the best wrestlers and they're not on TV. Like, we like, we're, we are in on the secret and the people just watching TV don't know, don't know shit, right? So it's cool that he kind of verbalized that. Um, Aries, I think Aries did a good promo. I think I would have liked to see maybe like a solo backstage intense Aries promo about how he's like, he's finally getting his title shot after being kind of snubbed for months after he lost it to Punk. But, you know, that's a, that's a nitpick. Um, the other, the other nitpick I would have, you know, cause the Carino stuff was fun, but I do think it kind of felt like it was booked on the fly in the sense of like, on the, at one point, it feels like Carino is just being a goof, like, oh, I thought the show started at 10. But then later on, you find out, like, oh, no, actually, Colt Cabana did, in fact, lie to him about, like, and he was he really was told that he had his title shot tonight. So it almost felt like they weren't totally sure at first where they were going with it, and they sort of just, like, figured it out as they went. I don't know if that's actually what happened, but that's how it felt. But, you know, Carino's such, like, just such a fun guy to watch that it really didn't matter. But you're right, you're right. It is funny that, like, we always complain about how, like, a lot of times in these backstage promos, you can't see anything. And now we finally have a promo where it's hard to see and it's hard to hear. They really did the, the, the <laughs> double whammy there. So that, that, that was very classic 2005 ROH. And that brings us to the opening match. Uh, a non-title match, so not for the pure title, Claudio Castagnoli defeats Nigel McGinnis via pinfall in nine minutes, 48 seconds using a backslide. Uh, Matt, you know, the opener, this is the start of the Claudio-Nigel feud. I guess they were kind of teasing in the four-way on the last show, but this is the start of them really wrestling against each other, which we'll see a few times now. Uh, what do you think about this? It's funny that this is Claudio's, what, his fourth match on an ROH main card, and it's his third with involving Nigel McGuinness, right? So, like, they really very early on were like, okay, these two are going to be paired with each other, which I guess made sense. They, they had history from, you know, other indies too. So, like, I think Gabe just knew that they worked well together and it would be a good way to get Claudio over, I'm sure. And, you know, get Nigel over too because that series also helped him. Um, I, does anybody remember um, – had somebody – like died right before this because I noticed that both Nigel and Colt Cabana later had black tape around their arms, which they don't usually have. And I wasn't sure if like somebody they were like it was like almost like a black armband and they were honoring somebody who died. I I, I no nobody rings a bell to me, but I don't know. And not everyone was wearing it, so I thought maybe it was just somebody that meant something to both of them, but maybe not somebody famous. I don't know. Um but as far as the match, you know, I mean uh, the first match they had at Fate of an Angel was um, a bit, you know, a bit, uh, 
you know, Claudio was was new, like brand new. I mean, he's still new here, but like wasn't totally doing his full his full shtick. But you know, since this wasn't a, a pure title match, they got to have a little bit more fun with it, and they do all the reversals, and the crowd really loves all that. And you know, Claudio doing his like de- teasing a dive, but stopping short and going hey, and all that stuff, and um. And yeah, this and they're pretty fast paced. It's not a long match. It's under ten minutes. You know, they they do a lot of their European uppercuts. Um, Nigel does a bunch of his as well. Um, you know, Claudio eventually does hit the dive, and it's a really on point dive. It sends Nigel right into the aisle. It was a really good tope, and um, and then it ends. Uh, Claudio uh, goes up top, hits the Tower of uh, Nigel hits the Tower of London, but Claudio gets his hand on the ropes. And then, like, I don't know, near the last, like, minute or two, I feel like things sort of get awkward and and slow down a little bit. And Claudio gets the sudden backslide for the win. Um, th- I-, I thought it was, like, a lot of fun for most of it. I did think the ending kind of something went wrong, but it didn't really hurt the match too much. I thought it was still a pretty good match. They didn't really, you know, this wasn't their best match. They didn't get a chance to do everything they could do, but it was a fun opener. Um, uh, one thing I will say, though, you know, because we talked about Nigel, about how he's like, he's a heel, but then like sometimes it's like he doesn't really work heel. He really wasn't working heel at all, heel at all here. It didn't feel to me. Like it felt like they were just having a match and Nigel occasionally would like scowl more than he, than he would as a baby face. But otherwise it was just a competitive match. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, in, it was an interesting choice to have Claudio upset the pure champion. I, I'm not sure if I agree with it or not, but it, you know, it did build into a, a longer rivalry between the two of them, so I guess it's okay. I, I liked it though; I thought it was a fun opener. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? I really enjoyed the opener. Um, both these guys were regulars for Cleveland All Pro, which was kind of the uh, preceding promotion that ruled Cleveland. Um, so they they were familiar to the the fans of the area. Um, JT Lightning was the promoter there. Another another person that's since passed away. Um, I I vaguely remember somebody passing away, and that's why Cabana and Nigel had armbands on. But for the life of me, I'm scanning through like my notes to see if I have something because I remember Hagedorn and I talked about this uh, prior to taping our episode when we did this show, and I don't remember who it was, but it was definitely somebody. Um, and I want to say it was like somebody from the IWA mid South bubble, uh, of people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe IWA was going out of business again. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> boy, if you had an armband for every time they went under, you would you'd have wearing... a lot of armbands. <laughs> you'd, you'd cover it from wrist to shoulder. Yeah. But, uh, I like this match. Um, I think these two had such wonderful chemistry with each other. And they really, like over the years, only had one match that I think fell short of, of expectations. Um, that being the the match from a new level, but um, you know that's years years into the future for you guys. Uh, <laughs> I, I just think that this was the right choice to open the show. The crowd knew both guys, so it was perfect for a new market to have a, a statement match where. You know, two two guys that were regularly featured in the area were going against each other right away. And I think Nigel was really starting to come into his own. Um, he's another one that I had seen 
really take a massive step forward in this period of time. Uh, Claudio, I think, was always really good, but his step forward came later. And it's it's just based on simply like time in the promotion. But I think Nigel really stepped up and went from being like that rock solid mid Carter to a guy that you can rely on, which they do the next night when he's wrestling Joe. Yeah, um, I, I I agree with both you guys. I thought this was a good little opener. Um, you know, it, it definitely felt like we've talked about this before. Sometimes the way a first match of a feud sometimes can feel where you're not doing every you, you're clearly holding some stuff back because, you know, you've got more matches with each other to come. But. I think these guys did enough that this did not feel insubstantial. I think they did enough to make this feel like you got, you know, uh, your money's worth here. Um, Claudio was really over again. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever gotten over. I, I forgot how much of Claudio's early shtick was just being the guy that said, Hey, after a lot of spots and how over that would get in most buildings immediately. Having, and, been, having uh, been at those shows live, I did not forget that that was what his shtick was early on. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Claudio was super playful at this point in the career, you know, saying the hey a million times, he wanting just frequent handshakes, playing to the crowd a ton, you know, just acknowledging them. A majority of his offense here is European uppercuts, and he has just a zillion variations. But he also, he just reminds you so often about how good athlete, how good an athlete he was for a guy of his height. You know, like you guys mentioned, he busts up that really impressive tope he's already done once or twice in Ring of Honor. Uh, at one point, He's um in a headlock and he does a handstand and hand walks out of the headlock. At another point, he fakes Nigel out of a handshake and then he just decides to do a cartwheel. Like, you know, just a guy just showing off like, look, look at all the stuff I can do at my height. And again, you know, there's this match does isn't really necessarily deep or anything. It's just, you know. It's fun to see two guys kind of one up, trying to one up each other with chain wrestling and uppercuts. The one thing I thought that I really noticed that was I, I this thought I had watching this was, and I don't blame Ring of Honor for doing this. Like, first off, Matt, I agree with you. Like, it was probably a in one sense a guy losing a non-title match is a classic way to set up a feud for a champion. But in another way, I do agree. It did feel kind of early for Nigel to be losing like any kind of singles match when he had very recently become the champion. I feel like you kind of don't want. I mean, it's not a huge giant mistake or anything, but I, I did have that same kind of thing where it's like, it's kind of early for a guy to be losing a non-title match this quickly into their run. But either way, but the thing I really noticed was WWS, that classic thing where they book so many guys that are between like six, five and six ten that a lot of times you'll see matches where, you know, they're all in the ring and you don't really, because of that, you don't really get across how tall they really are. You're kind of squandering their size. It's like the old classic thing that people always talk about is, you know, oh, you don't realize how big Billy Gunn is because he worked in WWE for so many years surrounded by guys that were even bigger. When and, you now, see him, and, and, he, and now in AEW, you do realize how big he is. Yeah. Oh, my the, God. He's so huge. Yes. Like, yeah, you have no idea. He's one of the most jacked and taller guys on the roster. In WWE, you know, in like 1999, you were like, oh, that's a medium-sized wrestler. And it's like, no, it isn't. That's just WWE went crazy. And I don't blame Ring of Honor for doing this because I feel like this is a natural feud in the sense they both are European. They both love to do European uppercuts. But it is kind of funny that like Claudio's just in the company 
And his first guy he's really paired with is one of the only other tall guys in the entire company. Like anyone else, you know, Nigel was feuding, would feud with in Ring of Honor. He'd look huge. You know, you're putting him with the other guy that is taller than average, other than Abyss at this point in Ring of Honor. And that'll, that kind of made me chuckle. Like, you know, it, it is kind of a WWS move. And I guess there's one other nitpick to mention. Although I think this is rises above nitpick, but this is yet another Ring of Honor show where they do not white balance between the cameras, which means, you know, every time they do the hard cam, everything has a bit of a yellow tint to it, which would be fine. You could get used to that. If not for every time they cut to the handheld ringside camera, it is white balanced. And so everything looks like just a normal light tone. So it's one of those classic Ring of Honor shows where it takes me like two or three matches to get adjust because every time they switch between cameras, it's as if you're in a different building. It's, you know, so jarring, so different. The color tone, the lighting, everything looks different. And, you know, this is hardly the first time this has been this way, but it's still this many years into Ring of Honor. No one just sits there and thinks to just white balance the two cameras you're using so that they look the same. But Trevor, not to cut you off, but I I do want to point out that in the upper areas of this building, you had uh, glass windows. So you actually had... Uh, one side of, of the building getting a light from downtown and the other side getting, you know, a, a, for lack of a better word, you're getting the same light, but it's actually the reflection of a parking garage. Wow. So, um, I mean, it's just the way it's the location of the building. So, yeah, I, I do you know think the white balancing from the hard camera is uh, non-existent. Uh, just to be generous. Uh, but I do remember Paul Turner was in there with the towel holding it up for the ringside cams to to white balance. So the, the floor cams were good. Hard camera? Eh, not so yeah. much. Yeah. And again, I almost at that point would just wait, like, I would rather everything be yellow, like on both cameras, at least then, because it, it's not so much the tint. It's just that one is so different than the other that whenever you cut, you know, again, it's the kind of thing you do get used to after a few matches. But the the first match or two, you're just like, every time the camera chooses, you're like, whoa, this is completely different. But the show, um, the show that I remember was the most egregious with that was Main Event Spectacles from 2003 from the Rexplex. The only Rexplex show that really had that problem, but it was very, very noticeable to me. This one at least was not that bad, but I know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> um, after the match, Claudio and Nigel shake hands. Again, like Matt said, you know, Nigel not really being super healish. You would expect the Nigel character at this point would be really pissed, like – doing something nefarious or angry. He didn't really cheat in this match. And instead he just shakes hands, even though you can tell Nigel wants to deck Claudio, but he kind of swallows his bile and just shakes hands. But then Nigel, Oh, go on. I was going to say, at least, you know, I'm curious to see if Nigel becomes like more despicable as a heel before he eventually turns face, because uh, he really is not that bad. Like, like as far as like, like, dastardly heels go he's not that dastardly he's just kind of like smarmy but like yep. he seems like still like a like a um a respectable like professional like even as he's being a little bit smarmy and egotistical yeah like shaking a hand after you lose a match cleanly is typically not a heel thing yeah but even just like what he does in the match like he's we've seen a little bit of cheating from him but not even that much 
when he won yeah. the title, obviously he did cheat. <laughs> that right. that's the one big thing. We'll see more in the future, I think, though. Yes. But uh, Nigel raises the pure title load to the crowd to remind everybody he's still the champ, even though he lost. And next, uh, Dave Prezak is backstage racing over to Carino and Cabana, who are having an argument in an area filled with so much old junk. It honest to God looks like the garage of a hoarder. Um, Carino accuses Colt of lying to him, only telling him he'd get a title shot against Dragon and not that he'd be wrestling Homicide and Loki, which kind of contradicts the promo we talked about earlier. And Matt, you kind of touched on that, how it felt like they were doing this on the fly because in that promo earlier, when when Colt mentions, oh, we're wrestling Key and uh, Homicide tonight, Carino goes, oh, I thought you were joking when you told me that. Here, Carino's just acting like you never told me at all that we'd be doing this. But either way, um, Carino accuses, like I said, Carino accuses Colt of lying to him, only tell him he'd get a title shot against Dragon, not that he'd be wrestling Homicide and Key. Colt said, hey, look, I needed help tonight. Carino thought he put the whole Homicide feud to rest with the war, their match at War of the Wire. Colt says, look, I didn't lie. I just stretched the truth. Uh, Carino is worried he won't be healthy now for his title shot tomorrow after their match tonight. Uh, Colt says they'll win tonight. And then he goes, I wonder if I could be an extreme makeover. And Colt corrects. I mean, Carino corrects him. He's like, you're not talking extreme makeover. You're talking about the extreme horseman, which for those who don't know was, uh, Carino's old ECW stable. Uh, <laughs> quacky Colt. And then Carino says, if they're doing this, Tonight, they're going to do it his way, and it might get a little dirty. It's not going to be the drug-free way of his buddy who ran off to Louisville. Creole says they're going to do psychological warfare. Colt says he'll have a Bartles and James, and he'll be ready to roll. Creole then screams to Key and Homicide that he's as pissed as Colt now. So that's the end of this little promo. Obviously, they're trying to do, again, kind of, you know, the the classic odd couple things. I, I always wonder, like, if you kept the tally how many like promos and feuds over Colt's career has been like the odd couple dynamic? Cause it just feels like, I mean, not that it was, it, they, they did it so often cause it worked, but that was like so often with Colt, it was classic. One guy is serious. One guy isn't taking it seriously. Well, you know, uh, he's uh, probably uh, done uh, that. Carino, feud 35 Carino, times. Carino's done plenty of the odd couple stuff in ROH too. With yeah. Punk. Like, and, and you know, and Korean funny thing is like, Carino is not that serious, especially in ROH. Like his his whole shtick is that he's really kind of, I don't know. Like he's he's kind of um, he's he's in ROH ironically. Yeah, there's an there's an irony to it. He's a little bit slovenly. Like it's like <laughs> kind of lackadaisical. Like it's it's interesting. You're right in ROH ironically. That's such a good way of putting it. Yeah, and uh, I know you're a big booster of, of Colt Jeff. I mean. I, I think I heard you when you guys did your episode about this show, which obviously people should go listen to. You mentioned how, like, you were guys were talking about how Colt and Carino maybe there was something missing in their chemistry with um without Punk there, kind of as in the middle between them. I didn't necessarily think it was that bad, but what I did kind of notice was it was just it felt like they were kind of repeating in some ways the Punk thing. You know, it's just like. Colt is now stepping into that role, which I, I I do feel like that's where I felt it got kind of weird. So I, I I must say, like I felt Punk was a crutch that they they relied on heavily here, um, and obviously you know wait till we get to the match and we talk about relying on that. But um, in this promo, like Cabana throws the heat on Jim Cornette, you know for you know telling him that he needed help. Uh, and that's how Carino comes back here. Um, and it, to me, it just, I think 
there is there it's like a it's almost like you have a grandfather not to say that Steve Carino is old uh but you have like this grandfather and the grandson but there's no father in the middle and punk was like the father of this you know grand grandfather and grandson duo that was Carino and Cabana um you're saying this was like a Simpson episode with about Bart with Grandpa Simpson without uh, Bart without, and Grandpa Simpson without yeah. Homer in the without middle Homer. yeah yeah, I mean, it just, I, I I like the promos, the the one from the very beginning of the show. I like this one. I think they were all delivered well. But, again, I feel like if they didn't have the crutch of CM Punk to rely on, what is there connecting the two? Yeah. And I, I think maybe from a creative standpoint, Gabe could have found something. He went with the safe bet. That's fine. I I was entertained, but you know, I, I think uh there is always going to be awkwardness when you have to rely on somebody that just can't come there to appear uh to contribute and you keep bringing them up over and over and over again. Uh I guess Punk was coming back in February, but they didn't I don't think that. That, had been, yeah. that that hadn't been decided by this point. Yeah, um, it's just it, it felt like a crutch, and and that's all all I can really say. I obviously the the goofy dynamic that you know Cabana and Odd Couple Partner and Carino and Odd Couple Partner uh, those are those will always be tropes that work for those two guys. So. Uh, and Carino's here, you know, in ROH, he's not going to go out there and have the, the five-star wrestling classic, although he does have a great match the next night with Brian. How could you not? Um, it's just, we're going back to Carino and Homicide again. And how many, I mean, (laughs) the bitter end, uh, was enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I I I'm I've got mixed feelings about revisiting that match, but uh, well, so uh, they won't be mixed up- when you do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next up we have a match. I think it's pretty hard to have mixed feelings on because this was pretty short and definitive. Uh, Ricky Reyes defeated Matt Stryker in two minutes thirteen seconds when he made him pass out in the Dragon Sleeper. Uh, this is Matt Stryker's final match in Ring of Honor, and what a way to go out. He's basically getting the Ring of Honor rookie treatment here, because at this point, this was Reyes' little put mini push here, getting to be the guy who squashed, by this point, only really students, and now he's squashing Matt Stryker. It, it, it was funny watching this, because it was basically like, it was the kind of match like you do when you almost feel bad you're squashing somebody because Rick, I mean, Matt Stryker basically got all the offense until the final 20, 30 seconds, at which point, you know, Reyes then just hits, you know, a few kicks, a kind of crappy looking jumping knee, the dragon sleeper, and just makes Stryker tap out. But before that, you know, it was one of those matches where like, for 90 seconds, Matt Stryker ran wild, he even hit this Death Alley driver, one of his finishers for a near fall. I felt a little bad that Stryker was running wild to almost no reaction. And then, and, you know, Ohio was like his home state territory. And Reyes, meanwhile, got a much bigger reaction just for putting him away so quickly with three moves. I just wrote my notes in all capital letters. Did the Field of Honor tournament mean nothing to you people? But <laughs> it's, it's sad in the sense that, like, you know, Matt Stryker 
the rest, I, Matt, I, Matt Feuerstein. I mean, I find that you were a little bit higher on Matt Stryker than I was, but I, I think we both agree he was a perfectly acceptable, fine, like undercard guy. And it was just kind of crazy how quickly his push flamed out where, you know, it seems like they were really behind him. They let him win an entire round robin tournament they've been doing for months. And then it just, you know, that tournament did not finish well. And right after that, that was like clearly it went from what should have been his crowning achievement to the beginning of the end. And I'm kind of amazed, like, why would you even take this booking? Like, I know he helped them at least with the Dayton shows promote those shows, but it was like, man, oh man, just coming out here to get squashed like this. I, I just, I kind of felt bad for him, but what did you think about this? Well, I guess a payday is a payday, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I, what I wrote at the beginning in my notes is just when they came out, like, like said, it's a charisma party. Um, but, <laughs> but no, but seriously, like, you know, I mean, you know, Matt Stryker, this is the end of his ROH run, but like, it's been over for a long time at this yeah. point. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to be like, okay, well, this was just a sad ending because it's like, they've, they've, you know, slowly or not so slowly brought him to this point where he gets squashed by Ricky Reyes. The thing that I was more interested in, it's just like seeing Ricky Reyes do those squashes, you know, over the past few shows, I still to this day don't really know what their plan was for Ricky Reyes. Like, what were they building him up for? Like, cause they didn't really give too many wrestlers a run of like squash matches pretty much at any point in what we've, in the era that we've been reviewing, but that's what they're doing with Ricky Reyes. And because you know in ROH, typically you don't get over by winning squash matches. You get over by having really good competitive matches. So I'm curious to know, like in Gabe's mind, like what was his end game plan for Ricky Reyes? I'm still not sure that I know. And the interesting thing too, when you think about this, not only are you right that they rarely do that kind of push, you could argue they were kind of doing it for a company that rarely does it, doing it two times at the same time because abyss you know on many shows including tonight would be getting that same kind of treatment where they're pushing him at that same kind of you know he's not squashing top names but you know he's gonna dominate anyone that's a student to a mid carter he's gonna really destroy them but uh, the the difference is abyss like he was he hasn't he wasn't even on that many shows so they they, they did that like a couple times with abyss and then had him involved in like multi-man brawls with reyes it's like show after show after show at this point and it's like what what are you what are you where are you headed with this i don't and again 16 years later i don't i do not know i do not know where uh, you're headed jeff you know you being from the Ohio area and having some knowledge of like the, uh, like you said, that the Ohio wrestling wasn't exactly a vibrant scene around this time before places like Rain Varney came in. Like, did you have a lot of fond Matt Stryker memories <laughs> up to this point? To, to be honest, no. Um, so Matt Stryker's from Dayton. Uh, well, actually, specifically Middletown, Ohio, which is just outside of Dayton. That's a five-hour drive from Cleveland. Um, Cleveland to Cincinnati is about six hours, maybe six hours ten minutes, depending on traffic. Um, so there is it's it's almost two different worlds. Cleveland is much more liberal in terms of of political views and you know suburban life, uh, where the Cincinnati and Dayton markets are a little more rural, a little more conservative um so the su- southern culture more so yeah 
right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and Columbus is kind of, you know, it's obviously the state capital, but it's really like almost a border of sorts in terms of, you know, everything from politics to sports loyalty. Um, you know, I think the one thing people in Ohio can unite on is Ohio State football. Um, and that's just because they're in the center of the state. If they were in a different corner of the state, you know, I don't know if they would be like the state university uh, that everybody unites to root for on Saturdays. Um, I never saw Matt Stryker on an indie show in Ohio. Um, I saw Nigel a lot. Um, I actually sat next to Nigel at a Dusty Road seminar in 2002. Um that I was a part of uh, through some some other circumstances that uh, my dad and this promoter had a little bit of a business arrangement and uh, the promoter ha- had owed some money to one of my dad's legal clients and somewhere or another I somehow got roped into uh, being able to go to the show sitting in the front row uh, the main event of this show, by the way, was Dusty and Jerry Lawler against the Road Warriors. Wow. Uh, yeah. Like, there's no way they made any money on this show. But Dusty, like, was amazing. Um, I will always be grateful to Dusty Rhodes for giving me the first ever, like, real lessons about the wrestling business and not treating me as some sort of fan or, or Mark fanboy that was just there to... You know, Mark out, um, he he really, like, sat me down and said, kid, you don't look like a wrestler to me. And I was like, oh, sorry, Dream, I'm still in high school. Uh, I don't want to be a wrestler. No offense. Um, but uh, Nigel sat next to me and took notes during that seminar, and I'll never forget it. Um, I, I didn't know who he was until, you know, a year, year and a half later when he was in ROH. Uh, on that Rexplex show, um, I want to say Weekend of Thunder, or no, maybe Main Event Spectacles. Main, main Event Spectacles was his first Rexplex show, yeah. He wrestled Jerry Lynn? That was, I think, at, at our best. He was in a tag match involving, I think, Xavier and John Walters, though, I think, at Main okay. Event Spectacles, if I remember correctly. Okay, so that that makes sense. Um, but yeah, he I as soon as I saw his name announced, I was like, wait a second, that's the guy... From the and the show was called September to remember, uh, so you know, needless to say, um, it was not not the highest of creative <laughs> indie wrestling shows in the area. But I saw a lot of Nigel, a lot of Nigel, a lot of Carl Anderson, um, and Carl was coming up from Cincinnati. I don't think Stryker ever left Dayton. Um, ah. Truth be told, for indie shows, um, unless it was ROH. Um, he did HWA, which was in Cincinnati. Um, you know, that's where like Chad Collier and BJ and, and Nigel were all based out of. But, you know, he did a lot of promoting for the Dayton area and I never made his way up to Cleveland at all. And uh, this two minutes and 13 seconds was plenty for me. I love Ricky Reyes, but the the only thing I can think of that this Reyes, you know, streak was going towards, you know, supposedly the, the payoff was the Austin Aries, you know, match, but I don't think that makes sense. I think 
the end game was Davy Andrews goes over Ricky Reyes, and that's what graduates Davy Andrews from student to member of the regular roster. Mm-hmm. That would make a lot because of sense. Yeah, that makes Dave, sense. Davy was gone. I want to say, like, if not final battle was the end, early 06. Um, and I, I'd have to ask Hagedorn for sure. And to this day, nobody knows where Davy Andrews is. So if you know, yeah. email, email. Yeah, yeah. Anyone that's ever, at gmail.com. Yeah, anyone that's ever listened to an, an honorable mention knows that one of the, the ongoing storylines, their version of our classic, um, the man-on-woman violence counter, one of their ongoing threads is, can anyone find out what happened to Davey Andrews? So if anyone on our show, if you haven't been listening to an honorable mention, if anyone on our show knows what happened, please get in contact with Jeff and Shane because the, the, that's a mystery they're trying to solve. So help them out. Um, it's not just Shane and I, it's Evan Starsmore, Matt Turner, um, the the four the four members of the first ROH class, um, the three others that were, you know, graduates, uh, along with with Anthony Franco. Uh, everybody wants to know where Davey is. If Only through the year, if, still alive. if through the years, and an honorable mention could team up and solve this, yes, Trevor, unsolved mystery, <laughs> that would be one of the greatest coups in the history of wrestling podcasts. Honestly, it would be like the greatest thing ever. Seriously, <laughs> yes. I I had such high hopes for Davey and as a, a wrestler and a character. I even had like my own uh, character in my head that I would, you know, w- eventually was going to suggest to him uh, the next time I I would see him. And then I never saw him again, so I never got the, the chance to su- suggest it. Maybe Davey but, Andrews turned into Davey Richards. Hmm? Oh my God! What a what a heel turn. <laughs> um, so next on the show, we joined we joined Jade Chung somewhere. I'm I'm saying somewhere because it definitely does not look like backstage at this show. Um, it looks too nice and well lit. I wrote to be backstage. She. She talks about freedom from that she's been granted from the dog collar, freedom from the grungy sheet that they never washed, they made her wear, freedom from slavery, freedom from Prince Nana. Jade brags about foiling Jimmy Rave's attempt at cheating on the last show, and she says Nana shouldn't be focusing on helping Jimmy Rave. He should be focusing on her, because if Nana tries to show disrespect to anyone like he did to her, she's watching and studying him from now on. Jade ends her promo by saying that she's always one step behind Nana, one step behind. And I just thought, I know what you mean, but that's the really a bad choice of words. Like, I'm always one step behind you. You want to be one step ahead of people. You know, you could have said, I'm always going to be breathing down your neck. You should be watching over your shoulder. I'll be right behind you. But saying, I'm always one step behind you just has a different connotation. But, uh, Matt, I I think this was like the last Jade Chung promo, which was she obviously has some charisma, has some delivery. Her material isn't great. Yeah, I will say because I, you know, I did my nitpick last time about how like just like the character work, like not the character work, the character writing of like the development of like just suddenly she the switch is flipped and all of a sudden she's this like super empowered, like confident person doesn't really make sense from a storyline standpoint. I will say. 
like execution wise and presentation wise, this was definitely a lot better than the promo from Unforgettable. Like it just it's it was more entertaining, better better delivered, and you know she definitely has charisma and did a good job. I you know the character stuff, it's like you know just got to get over that one because it's clearly yeah. they 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 just jumped from like they jumped like. Uh, like three levels ahead with this character like after you know like it's like they 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 skipped the middle of the story and went right to the end point of the character arc but you know that said i think she did a good job with the material she was given yeah and jeff i mean i don't know if you have much to say about this a short promo but we were not uh jay chung is not long for the ring of honor world at this point no and i I think that's why they they went from story stage one to story final act pretty fast um it it sucks timing wise because i think there was a lot more meat on the bone here yeah um you know jade had other plans and i think she had a ton of personality and just never really had much of a chance to show it and uh up next the ring of honor tag team title match it's a rematch of the title change Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluke successfully defend their titles, defeating Lacey's Angels of BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs. And they win via pinfall in 1303 when Sal pins Whitmer after he and Mamaluke hit a combination second rope, side Russian leg sweep, and sunset flip power bomb. Uh, Jeff, uh, you know, you know, Sal Renaro, another guy you've had on through the, I mean, an honorable mention. God damn it. I, I was worried I was going to make that mistake, but, um, another- we can call Sal and see if he wants to come on now. No, I mean, you guys do the interview so well. That is one thing that, uh, we have never done and probably never will do. Um, Although if Brian Danielson ever wants to come on, I I will change for the, him. But I mean, again, another sh- show. Was- what you like, you're going to dress up. <laughs> I'll do uh, Matt. Will there I'll be do, an updated picture? Is the question. I will do whatever Brian Danielson wants <laughs> me to do. Uh, I'll let him. I'll I'll do anything to enter the dragon, Matt. But um, hey, uh, I'm scr- <laughs> I'm scratching my my chin right now as we speak, Trevor. After that statement, <laughs> but okay. Uh, uh, uh Jeff. Um, what did you think about this match? Please change the subject. So we also had Jimmy Jacobs on the show. And uh, so half of this match has been on our our podcast. Yeah, I forgot that's and that's I, that's a great episode of your show. That's a, I mean both are. And I mean, Jimmy, your interviews are very good. Jimmy's a great interview subject. He's a great guest. Um, and Sal is too. Sal much more funny than than serious. Um, in fact, you know, at one point I wanted to do a Sour Naro Jimmy Rave dual episode. Where they just spent the whole episode busting each other's balls and telling stories. But, you know, unfortunately that never came to be. Um, I will say that, that this match, obviously, like, Jimmy and BJ, I think, was a great tag team. Uh, you saw the little thing, like, at the uh, start when they're entering the ring where uh, BJ lifts Lacey up and puts her on the apron. And then Jimmy wants bj to pick him up and put him on the apron and then they just kind of wave each other off and get in the ring there were still some kinks being worked out between these two but i thought there was like a little magic between them whereas with sal and tony and sal talked about this in in the interview we did they never clicked uh it felt very much square peg round hole uh from a wrestling standpoint i thought the match was fine um i 
I did not think it was worth, you know, doing again and again and again and again. Uh, I think they did this twice in Ring of Honor and maybe once in FIP. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, Tony Mamaluke is here and they're the tag team champions and the match was okay. Like, I don't want to say it was bad. I thought the, the match from the, uh, Philly, uh, I think it was Philly, Philly or uh, New, York. New York, New York. Yeah. New York. Okay. Uh, the match from New York was the better of the two, but I think Sal and Tony were better together here as opposed to just being forced together, you know, air devil style <laughs> back Great in New York. Uh, Matt, you know, like, like Jeff just mentioned, you know, this is a match we've seen once before very recently. Uh, how'd you think this snacked up to the last time we saw it? Well, I know, I know I didn't like the New York match as much as you did. I definitely yeah. know that, but you know, I, I would say what I enjoyed about this one is I did enjoy how much Jimmy Jacobs was so quickly embracing the fact that he was a heel now for the first time in ROH, like just being smug and prickly and like, you know, taunting and flaunting and like doing all that stuff. And, you know, I, I did, you know, I also enjoyed a little bit. There was like a thing where like, so Mama Luke and Renaro do this thing where like they keep tagging in and out back and forth and like almost getting annoyed at each other how they keep tagging instead of like the other guy staying in the ring until finally Mama Luke comes in and starts kicking Jimmy's shoulder and then yells to Sal, that's how you beat somebody's ass. Like almost like they tried to get this dynamic of like Sal was a goof and Mama Luke was trying to set him straight, which, you know, like we talked about, you see it a lot of tag teams and I doesn't, doesn't think, doesn't seem like they really stuck with that one, but they were trying stuff. Um, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, I, I enjoyed the heel stuff from, um, Jacobs and Whitmer, especially Jacobs. And I, uh, and I thought that there was some pretty good excitement down the stretch to the point where, I found this to be a little bit of a pleasant surprise. Um, the one thing that I would say that, that I found to be a negative was, um, just like, and I think you actually mentioned this, you and Shane did on an honorable mention when you reviewed this match. Whitmer and Jacobs, and especially like Whitmer, like they needed a win here. Like they were part of like a new faction and like they put, the, they put them in a match that they couldn't possibly win. Um, because they weren't going to change the titles here. So maybe if you're going to do this match again, do it later. I mean, Aries had to wait like five months to get his rematch. So yeah. why, why not make Whitmer and Jacobs wait a few shows to get theirs? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it was because they weren't on shows together that much after this weekend. I got to check back and see about that one. But, um, you know, as far as like, this is a new Lacey's Angels and just logically speaking, I don't even remember the last time BJ Whitman won a, BJ Whitmer won a match on DVD. He lost the match it at, um, at Glory by Honor, uh, for that Lacey was taking notes on. He lost his match at Survival of the Fittest that Lacey was taking notes on. Then he lost the tag team titles. Then Lacey decided to take this loser and make him part of her stable. And then he lost the first match as part of her stable. So it's like, it doesn't, like, and I don't really mean he's a loser. I mean, like, that's the way they're depicting him. What, it doesn't seem like great booking, and I do think that like BJ at this point has the least momentum that he would have f- for most of his ROH career. Um, I you know I don't think those losses were meaningless. Like I, I feel like until the CZW feud started, he was really kind of uh, adrift 
you know, and I guess, you know, some of those matches with, um, Jacobs too, really that, that one in, um, besides the, the CZW feud, the Jacobs match in Detroit really, I think really set him back up to have some momentum again. But really both of these guys are this for, for two people that just turned heel and got a new manager, they're really not in good shape booking wise. And I think, I don't think this match helped that, although I did enjoy it just in a vacuum as a wrestling match. Yeah. Um, and the the weird thing still, I agree with all of that. Like the 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 weirder thing still was after the match, they cut to a shot of um Lacey at ringside, and she's like grinning and nodding her head. Your team just lost. She's like, yeah, that's the way. It's like what? Like 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 what? <laughs> it felt such like such an out of place shot to put that in, like from a different match almost. It, it was just such a bizarre thing, but um. Yeah. So let, I, let me ask okay. you guys this, because I think this is a valid question to go along with this BJ Whitmer losing streak. Do you guys think that Jimmy and BJ were put together with Lacey as something that Gabe was setting them up to split them up? I, I, I it's the only thing that makes sense to me because they did split up. You know, not it's not like they were together for so long with Lacey. In fact. I can't even think off the top of my head how many tag matches they had together once they joined Lacey. It it was not that many. So it's got to be less than less than ten. Yeah, oh, much less. I would say. Um, I I wonder if it's even less than five. So like, I I, I feel like that's the only thing that makes sense because I mean that's what eventually got them back over again. Although, on the other hand, you hear from Jimmy Jacobs like if before he really discovered his character as far as him like you know chasing after Lacey, he was. So, going to be dropped, right? Like he wasn't like yeah. They weren't even planning on using him much more. So, and I, I want to say that would have been in like mid mid to late November. Yeah. So so really, they might have only had like a, you know a handful of matches um, as once they joined Lacey. Um, so so yeah, who knows what they were going for? You know, I mean, obviously they wanted to do something with Lacey, but putting her immediately with a team that starts losing is probably not the way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I can see it either way, Jeff. Like on one hand, Gabe did typically like book things fairly long term in advance, but on the other hand, so I could see him doing something like like setting him up immediately to for Kyle to fail to set up a breakup. But on the other hand, you know, I feel like the division he put the least thought into at this time was the tag team division. Like we had just covered a few, a bunch of shows ago, you know, where Jimmy and uh, BJ lose the titles very briefly to the Carnage crew. And, it, you know, Gabe gave to uh, one of the newsletters, he outright just said, like, I felt like the tag division was getting stale and, and people were getting, it was getting too predictable. So I just did this quick change. So that doesn't seem like a guy uh, at this point that's putting a ton of thought into the tag division. I know on your guys' interview with Sal Renaro, he mentioned that he had kind of heard when they became, when he and Tony became tag champions, that they were going to drop it at first to, uh, Lethal and Joe, and then later to Aries and, they changed that plan to Aries and Strong. So in that sense, you could say if they were already thinking, at the start about like Sal and Tony, like we're giving these belts to these guys so they can drop them for a team. We really want to get behind. Then maybe they were playing the tag division out that far ahead. And maybe at that point, yeah, maybe they, so I could see it either way with uh BJ and uh, Jimmy. I could see them having planet or this being complete fly by the sea of their pants. But either way, I thought the match was like, not as good as that Joe versus Kabashi show tag, which I really did enjoy. I thought this was still like a strong, like above average, but 
it didn't have the energy in the ring or from the crowd of the first match. And obviously having the energy from the crowd of Joe versus Kobashi, impossible. I mean, the crowd was still de- solid here, but the match, the occasion had a lull, didn't have a great focus, but there were some fun creative sequences that felt like these guys were tr- being in te- inventive, trying to like, you know, make something of this match. There's a fun sequence where BJ's on the floor Tony slides on his belly under the bottom rope and he does a guillotine choke on BJ. BJ like bends down while he's stuck in the guillotine choke, which allows Sal to run off the ring apron, launch off BJ's back and do a forward flip off his back onto Jacobs, who's also at ringside. And then BJ, while he's still in the choke, charges into the barricade to break it up. It's a really fun sequence. And then later there's a neat little thing where Mama Luke has BJ in the arm bar -er, and uh, BJ lifts him up one armed into a power bomb, which we've seen, you know, in wrestling a fair bit. But Mama Luke just holds on to the arm bar and like rolls through the power bomb attempt. And then at that point, Jacobs finally breaks it up where he does like a cross ring senton, like really impressive leap. So there was some really cool stuff in it like that. Um, and, And Matt, I agree with you in the sense that. I do feel like it's, it's funny. Again, you listen to the Sal Renaro interview on an honorable mention and, uh, we're giving you guys your weight in plugs on this episode, but <laughs> it, 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 it was funny because oh, so that's why I'm here. Yeah. Okay. It, 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 it's it, Sal talks about how, like, you know, you acknowledged it too, that, you know, they're he and Tony's chemistry wasn't great. And maybe Tony and him didn't see eye to eye on some things, but Matt, like you said, I thought there were some little hints of like an odd couple chemistry here. Like you mentioned the they're constantly tagging out to each other and, you know, mom looks saying that's how you do it. Uh, I thought stuff like that, you know, like there was a little bit of something that they had to work with here that you could see, Oh, maybe there are, there is something to build off of here. I, I liked how like mama Luke picked up, like his hatred of BJ Whitmer from the last match he picked up right here where he's, he's insisting on getting to be in the ring with BJ, even though he's the small guy. Like I I'll say this, I like in terms of tag team combinations, we've seen worse here, even though, yeah, it does seem like they, they didn't click completely for a team. That's only had two matches together at this point. We've seen worse. And, um, I, I want to say about Sal in particular, um, a lot of those guys that came from NWA Wildside, they knew how to work the indie wrestling style, or, you know, in this case, I guess the Ring of Honor style, like Shane and I talk about. But they also knew how to work the TV style. So if you watch Sal, like, his face is always looking for a camera. Like, he is he's obviously focused on doing cool moves and showing off his personality and selling, but he's looking for a camera to do it for. And it, it put him and Jimmy rave and AJ styles as well. Uh, so far ahead of a lot of the guys that didn't have the TV experience that it really benefited them. And I think this match in particular is a good example of Sal looking for cameras to do things into. That's really interesting because that's the kind of thing a lot of times I I will miss. I find that's one of those things where a lot a lot of times it's one of those things you only notice when someone doesn't know it. You know, like like you notice when someone clearly doesn't know how to work to the cameras where they're doing like a submission facing away from the hard camera so you can't see facial expressions or stuff. It's one of those it, – it's, it's kind of underappreciated I think a, a skill to know how to – 
always position yourself so that your facial expressions and you know all your moves are are being shot in their best light and you're making it easier on everyone that has to edit and all that um absolutely so uh, next, we get a video of Jim Cornette in an office somewhere. He wants to thank everyone involved in tonight's event. He's sorry he couldn't be here live, but he's still trying to clear his schedule so he can be at more live events. Cornette feels that the tag division has lost focus in Ring of Honor. I would argue hasn't ever had focus in Ring of Honor up to this point. He says he plans to refocus and rebuild it, and he'll make some suggestions for new teams, including teams of people that are already in the company, some that aren't even currently together as a team at this moment. And yes, yeah, very short little program, promo, just, you know, sending out some stuff. I wrote in my notes, this is about as polite and calm as Jim Cornette gets. If you, if you just watch this pro, you think, oh, Jim Cornette's just a nice, kindly middle-aged man who likes wrestling and wants everyone to have a good time. And, you know, rare you see a promo that's not Jim Cornette ranting about somebody or screaming about something or being pissed off. This, if you want one that's, he just seems like a calm, sedate man. This is the promo for you. He checked oh. off none of his three patented boxes in this promo. There was no racism, there was no homophobia, <laughs> and there were no hot tub parties or secret rooms. Ooh. <laughs> the one thing but, I'll, the one thing I will say though is he doesn't really, I mean, they don't really follow through with that tag division thing. Like the Briscoes come back a few months later, but like and like slowly the tag division does get more interesting, but it takes a while. It's not like this is like an immediate project that they're doing. Yeah, and again, it goes back to what we were talking about before about like how much thought was being put into the tag division. It really doesn't feel until like Aries and Strong that they really finally are like, okay, we've we're, we've got like a firm direction. These guys are going to hold it for a while. We're just Re- going to let them run with it. Really, not until the Briscoes. I I think that you know not when the you know not when the Briscoes win, but when they show up, that's yeah. when it feels like there's a direction. Because at least at first, Aries and Strong could be like, you know, any random team that they throw the titles on, you know, which they did, you know, a bunch of times. Like this is just, you know, the Briscoes is we what just gave- talked about two of those teams exactly. Yeah. Like, the Briscoes is what gave Aries and Strong some focus in their reign and made it a decent reign. Like, I, I don't feel like without the Briscoes, I don't know how good of a reign Aries and Strong would have had, even though they're both obviously great wrestlers. Yeah, Aries and Strong, you know, you can put the belts on them all you want, but if they have no destination opponent, then does their reign even really matter? Exactly, like, exactly. And and they had, you know, the Kings of Wrestling to, to work with. They had the Briscoes, like... That's two really great tag teams that fit perfectly in, you know, what is, what is essentially a work rate promotion in the work rate promotions tag division. So you have that, and then you look at where the tag division is here on this show, and it's Sal and Tony who were thrown together. You have Joe and Jay Lethal, you know, in the mentor protege relationship. Jimmy and Alex Shelley, you know, I guess we can consider them a tag team, even though we're part of a, a bigger picture. And then we have, uh, you know, uh, BJ and Jimmy. But in the grand scheme of things, um, the tag team in, in Gen Next was strong in Jack Evans. Yes, I agree. So you hadn't even established Aries and Strong yet as yeah. a tag team. So I just think it's really interesting to see this promo from Cornette about focusing on the tag division, and I'm all for it. 
especially, you know, if you look at Ring of Honor's history, you know, over 20 years, the tag division was like a roller coaster ride. It was, you know, you go up and you'd have five or six teams that were all viable and fit. And you go back down, you have two or three, maybe. And then back up and you got six or seven. And then you go back down and there's just two. So I think it's uh, interesting timeline wise. Uh, refocusing on the tag division. And uh, next up, we had Roderick Strong defeating Jimmy Yang via pitfall in 10 minutes, 59 seconds after he hit a pump handle slam. Um, we've now seen three Jimmy Yang on through the years. We've seen three Jimmy Yang Ring of Honor matches against three quality opponents. You know, he had the match with James Gibson. He had the match versus Christopher Daniels, now Roddy. And I would say they are, we've gotten three solid but unspectacular matches. And I would also say I feel like Yang has worked them all kind of in a similar way, which is do a crazy kick, lock in a hold, rest for a bit, do a crazy kick, lock in a hold. And I have no problem with, you know, submissions, but there's something about the way Yang has been doing it in these matches that always feels like time filler. Matt, I know you've had a theory on his first two matches that he seemed like maybe he didn't quite have the stamina, and I guess that that, that very well might be here too because he's definitely working a match the way you would if you were trying to pace yourself or maybe needed to catch your breath. Um, the crazy kicks Yang does, they're cool. But even there, I would say that I've noticed on this match, a lot of Yang's kicks are usually these giant roundhouses and windmills. So when you see enough of them, you start to notice that a lot of them don't make great contact. And I granted, I'll, I'll, I'll give away right away that like doing crazy windmill kicks, it's hard to have them both make contact and not legit hurt someone. So better to err on the side of caution. But you do start to notice when you see a lot of Jimmy Young Yang matches in a row that like, oh, some of these kicks don't come anywhere close, you know, because he has to do such huge windmills while still trying to be safe. I will say this was a decent, you know, solidly above average, but nothing special match. It, I, I wrote, this match is fun when Roddy's on offense, because Roddy's offense is always really fun. And luckily, he's on offense the majority of this match. In fact, I was kind of shocked given that this is Jimmy Yang's third match in Ring of Honor and his third straight loss that Roddy actually got like the majority of the offense on this match. You would think that if you're going to lose for the third straight time out of the gate, you'd kind of get a lot of the match, but actually Roddy controls a lot of this and it's mostly just his regular offense backbreakers. He just blisters Yang's chest with chops. I really dug the hot start early where Roddy hits a running kick as Yang's in the, like the skin, the cap position and hanging on the ropes. And then he falls up with a dive over the top rope. You know, Roddy's, you know, doesn't do a lot of dives. Um, decent match, but yeah, there's just something about Yang where, uh, you know, James Gibson, Christopher Daniels, Roderick Strong feels like he should have had at least one banger out of those three. And he, we have no bangers, Matt. I mean, at least that's what I think. What did you think about this match? Um, yeah, not a banger. I, I think I liked it more than you just because I think during this stage of Roderick Strong's career, he could not have a match that I didn't think was like really good. Like, I, I feel like it's very hard for me to not super enjoy a 2005 ROH Roderick Strong match. And I, I really enjoyed this because, like you said, his offense was great. Like, you know, his chops are always super awesome. He actually um, got Yang to be a little bit more aggressive with some of his chops at some point. 
and you know yang got some fun like wacky stretchy holds uh, on Roderick at different points i feel like his spinny flippy kicks were were more sparing than they were in the gibson match and i thought that was that was better um and you know the the one negative I would say you know Yang did still have some sloppiness and I guess the other one would be they didn't really try to tell a much of a story here like it was just like the story was that you know they were competitive and that Yang was you know fighting back against Roderick's stiffness but you know it is you know I um to be fair to Yang it's probably hard to be motivated like to the degree that you might want to be when they job you three matches in a row in your big debut like i don't i don't know like that's not what they did for james gibson and i don't know if that's necessary like if they were really had plans for yang like i don't know if that's a real fair way to debut him you know even though he's obviously was against you know three major roh stars they should have given him a match that he could have won at some point because isn't this his last match there for a while so like you know three losses three you know competitive losses but still losses but um Overall, I would say this was – I enjoyed it just because I really love Roderick Strong, and I do think that Gibson, each match to me, he's looked slightly better than the one before. And, Jeff, like I know you guys have talked about, like it's always that one of those Ring of Honor mysteries, like Jimmy Yang, a talented guy. And it's not like any of these matches are bad, but it's just – you know, he just never quite lived up to the expectations of Ring of Honor. I think – you know, the measuring stick for coming from WWE to ROH was James Gibson. And that's and unfair, probably. That is totally unfair to compare anybody to, because nobody, nobody had that. I mean, Gibson just had this magic to him that you, you were, it, he was like a magnet. You know, you couldn't not get attached to the guy. And this this building in particular was pretty good for Jimmy Yang. Um, when he's back in, I think January, he's in a six uh, six man mayhem that I think was probably his best match in ROH. Um, I think this is actually probably his second best. Um, and and like Matt said, like 2005 Roddy is that's you know what you put on the top shelf. Uh, to keep away from danger. Um, <laughs> Allison, he was just Allison danger? <laughs> no, 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 no. Allison, no, we don't have men on women violence on this show. <laughs> um, but I, I legit, like, Roddy was so good in 2005 and into 2006 that it was hard to really keep up with him. And I think, you know, when you're looking at this match, um, it's number one, it's the James Gibson endorsement match, right? So yeah. Gibson's final weekend, he picks Roddy and Jimmy Yang to wrestle in his final two matches. Naturally, they're a pairing here. Um, I do agree that this probably, you know, Jimmy should have gotten a win somewhere along the lines. However, if you look at him not being able to get out of first gear and, and really turn up the volume cardio wise, Putting him with Roddy, who probably has the best cardio of anybody on the roster, including Brian Danielson, probably not the wisest of choices. But I see where the match is very appealing on paper. And, you know, if Gip, if uh, Yang is going away for a while, I assume probably to all Japan for a tour. Um, 
you know, this would be a good match, you would think, like a good strong effort from him to send him out on. And I thought the match was pretty solid. Um, but like Shane and I have said on, on our show uh, a million times over, Jimmy Yang was always solid, yet unspectacular. Yeah, uh, that's a great way to put it. I just, you know, he's get, gets a lot of really great opponents and opportunities and you know, he never gives you something that you go, well, that's terrible, but he never really gives you something where you go, man, you know, he hit it out of the park here and he got some good pitches. So, um, that brings us to Colt Cabana and Steve Carino defeating the Rottweilers of Homicide and Loki in 25 minutes, two seconds when Carino pinned Homicide after hitting a Northern Lights bomb. Uh, Homicide gets the foot on the ropes, but Colt Cabana pushes the foot off the ropes. Uh, I will cue it to you, Jeff, for your intro, but first, I guess I'll just mention before we get the intro, Carino comes out wearing a pair of CM Punk's old basketball short-style trunks with his hands taped up like Punk. His body has a bunch of hand-drawn fake tattoos, like almost drug-free on his arm. I love beer on his stomach. He keeps making the straight-edge pose with his arms to the fans. Very goofy, funny stuff. And then, of course, as is common with Credo in Ring of Honor, his personal bring it, ring announcer, Brian Regal, has a whole introduction lined up for him. And this is an honorable mention. You know, Jeff does this very well. He reads off all of these introductions. So, Jeff, I'm glad you're saving me some time here. I will take a drink of water and enjoy this yes. ring introduction. So, first of all, I, I do want to note, um, Bobby Cruz's luggage was lost by American Airlines for this show. That's why he's sitting at ringside in a t-shirt and sitting very, oh. very low, as low as humanly possible. When uh, they moved the bell from Alex Payne and his amazing haircut. Uh, oh my goodness. Payne. What are we thinking, bro? <laughs> um, they moved the bell to Bobby to ring it uh, because of the, what was coming up. And uh, I was reminded that um, I remember during the day, Bobby yelling and screaming, American Airlines, I lost my luggage again. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sick of shit. So, and that was a frequent thing with him when he would lose his luggage. So he started carrying his, his um, suit with him um, in his carry-on luggage um, and not relying on the airlines to deliver said bags on time. Uh, so he was in a surly mood. Um, he had yet to, to you know dye up his hair or anything like that. Uh, so I'm sure he was very, very frazzled by the fact that he did not have all of his equipment uh, for this big show here in Cleveland. Um, but as you said, the fans are, are doing the uh, the guardrail bang to Punk's music, uh, which, you know, we've got Carino throwing up the X. And that leads into the great Brian Regal. Uh, as you can tell, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very special evening in Cleveland, Ohio. We gathered together to celebrate the return of an ROH legend. There's also another reason we gather, and that is to mourn a great loss. The evil empire, or the WWE as some may call it, has taken away the promise of many a career. The following have all had their futures damaged beyond repair by the fine folks in Stanford, Connecticut. Ludwig Borga. The Gobbledygooker, Bad News Brown, Bastion Booger, 
the Red Rooster Terry Taylor, Frankie Kazarian, Nails, T.L. Hopper, Techno Team 2000, Duke the Dumpster, Drozy, Simon Dean, which got a tremendous amount of laughs, uh, Freddie Joe Floyd, The Goon, Salvatore Sincere, and last but certainly not least, Philip James Miguel Brookstein, better known to you as CM Punk. Even though Mr. Brookstein seems destined to a similar fate to the men on this list, please remember that he is eligible to return to professional wrestling in 997 days. Let's hope he can make it till then. Now, please rise and remove your hats as we hold the ceremonial five count for the careers of these wrestlers. Why five, you ask? Because Vince McMahon has told us he owns the rights to a ten-bell salute. Then they do the five dings. And now, allow me to introduce to you a man who will never allow his career to be driven into the ground by the evil empire. Tonight, he makes his long-awaited ROH return. He hails from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He weighs in tonight at 237 pounds. He is a member of the Extreme Horsemen. He is the king of old school. He is the king of kings. He is your fucking god of professional wrestling, Steve Corino. (laughs) That was beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I think the Bobby Cruz Brian Regal introduction may be my favorite like little thing in Ring of Honor history. Um, so I always try and do them justice, and I think Bobby Cruz is the best ring announcer of all time. So um, far, be it from me to be able to to do half as good as he could do it. Um, but Bobby's a legend, and uh, you know he he did the first, and I just happened to love it enough to sit there and press pause after every single name or title <laughs> or group of women that Cabana wants to have a three-way with, I, you know. It's interesting to notice that they, they made a, a reference to when CM Punk is eligible to return to professional wrestling. Because on his return promo in AEW, he sort of said, like, when he left Ring of Honor, he left professional wrestling. So how many yep. days was it till he finally returned to professional wrestling? I got now, I, I forget, did he did he give a number of days when he did that AEW promo? I don't remember. I'm but not thir- 1,300 and something. 1,326, yeah. maybe? Yeah. But- so. He definitely gave a number of days. It was an interesting parallel between that this little um, intro and CM Punk's promo. I wonder if he remembered this this uh, shtick that Carino and Brian Regal did all the way back in it, Cleveland. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, and if, um, of or course, or at the on. very least, somebody brought it up to him. Right. Yeah. And of course, um, it, it, the weird thing, and you would see this a lot in Ring of Honor, but especially on this show, you get a big double dose of it, where we have an opening Brian Danielson promo where he talks about, you know, not needing to sell out to corporate wrestling, and then Steve Carino coming out and talking about how he would never sell his soul to the evil empire WWE, and of course, both men, you know, Daniel, 
Brian Danielson as Daniel Bryan has a long run in WWE and still to this day says a lot of good, uh, speaks very lovingly about Vince McMahon and his time there and saying how it was a hard decision to leave. Carino currently employed there. And I'm not saying any, like holding it against either guy. I, I'm not one of those useful about people. I can completely understand why you would go there. But it is funny where rewatching this era of Ring of Honor, there are so many guys, even even Punk, not on a DVD, but I think on like a shoot interview, we talk about like, oh, I don't think I'd ever go to WWE. I just, they don't, they're not my kind of thing. You know, so many guys, you could probably write up a Carino style list of Ring of Honor wrestlers that talk yeah. about how I'll never go to WWE that end up going to WWE. Well, oh, I mean, well, keep on, a lot of guys say that because they don't think that they could go to WWE and they certainly don't think that if they did, they'd be treated well. So it's not, I, I think part of it, you know, I'm sure part of it is honestly like it doesn't represent what they believe in, but also I'm sure part of it's a defense mechanism too, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Money and money talks. Like, let's be honest here. WWE was the only place to make a full-time living in wrestling for a long, long time. Yep. And... Listen, I'm as guilty of anybody as criticizing people that went to WWE back during this time Um, because not only did I not watch the WWE product from, I would say, roughly late 2003 uh, all the way through probably 2008, 2009 um, because I was so into Ring of Honor and the indies, I, I didn't have time. I didn't. I didn't feel like I would get my money's worth where I could watch these great wrestling matches elsewhere. And I would, you know, call people sellouts and all this stuff. And really as an adult now looking back, I regret that very much because these people were just trying to provide for themselves and their families if they had one. And, um, you know, Carino went to WWE punk Cabana went and, Arguably, you know, you could make a, a, an argument. Cabana was the one that probably should have been the biggest star of any of these guys there. He'd be the, um, he'd just be because the one, of he'd his be the, personality. Yeah, he'd be the one that you'd peg as the best fit, at least like on the surface, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, how that went was just mind-blowing to me because he, he got screwed so badly there. And to this day, I... I think that might have been the biggest swing and a miss that WWE had. He should have been on Carino's list right here. He he could have been. This were only, you know, two years later, three years later. Um, I, but I do, I will tell a story real quick with Cabana and WWE. He and Matt Seidel had gone there and they were at um, Florida, Florida championship wrestling. It wasn't NXT yet. I'm pretty sure. And uh, Ring of Honor was in Orlando for WrestleMania weekend. And I reached out to Colt and I said, hey, you know, we're staying at this hotel. There's a bunch of us from the, you know, the ROH fan base that are over here. You're welcome to come by and and say hello if you want. If not, that's cool, too. Don't know what obligations you guys have. And they both came over to see just to, to be around Ring of Honor fans. That's really nice. Not not Ring of Honor wrestlers. Ring of Honor fans uh, to soak in that energy. And I, I just think both those guys were so talented and so gifted. They should have been, you know, featured players at WWE. And Seidel was for uh, a little while until he got hurt. Um, Seidel, but, has, Seidel had a couple of like different issues, but like yeah, Cabana, they just yeah. completely like dropped the ball on, like didn't even give him a chance. 
and there was some anti-Semitism that yeah. played into the Cabana situation, and it just it that's one that really sits on my shoulder when I I look at WWE as a company and say, is this company worth my time, energy, and investment? And then I think of all the negative things, and the Cabana uh, situation there was pretty high up on my list of reasons why I should change the channel. Yeah, I can't, can't fault anyone for that. Um, Matt, I, I guess it's your turn for first crack at this match. Uh, on paper, four really talented guys. I mean, Carino's first match in Ring of Honor in many a month, you know, rekindling one of the hottest feuds in Ring of Honor history with him and Homicide. You know, the Colt feud with Homicide is supposed to be picking up at this point. But what did you think about the actual match? 25 minutes. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, and I'm not saying this match was terrible or anything, but the best part of the match was the part that Jeff just read, the uh, the opening uh, introduction. Like, I I don't know what made them think 25 minutes was a good idea for this. Like, if this match was 10 minutes shorter, it almost definitely would have been better. Like, you know, they had some fun stuff going on, some interesting pairings, you know, Cabana and Loki, they're not the best pairing i guess we could we'll see next on the next show how well they work together but like they're an interesting one at least it's something we don't see very often so it's at least different but there's just so much stalling and like dragging and sloppiness um even at the very beginning of the match you have carino and homicide starting off like they're gonna fight then homicide grabs the mic and i really can't tell what he says except something about he's going to beat the shit out of this cracker and then they immediately tag out, but it didn't seem like they were scared of each other. Like, I don't know what story they were trying to tell there, but like, cause they, they do end up fighting a bit. Um, at one point, you know, cause Carino's in that CM Punk outfit. Somebody tries to start a CM gut chant, which gets over with nobody except for Dave Prezak, because he immediately uses that term to describe Carino. So he at least was the one person that enjoyed that chant. Um, but no one else said it. But yeah, so they, 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 they do a bunch of basic stuff. Then every once in a while, they do some more heated stuff. Like, you know, they'll, they'll do some, some mat like work and then they'll start rolling around brawling. Like there's a little bit of like tonal inconsistency. Um, like they do some the callbacks to Carino and Homicide with like the ear stuff. Cause Carino goes after Homicide's ear, you know, I guess for revenge and then Homicide smacks Carino's ear a couple times. So they, they do some of that stuff They're you know, um, Carino and Key actually, I think, do some pretty um good stuff together. I actually like I like their sequences. Key and Cabana, not as much. There's one point where Homicide hits Carino with a chair to the head and Carino collapses and I was like, wait, I thought the new commissioner was there because they weren't gonna get away with doing stuff with chairs, but Homicide is not disqualified, so I guess that that doesn't really mean anything. Also Carino comes back really quickly, so I guess the chair shot didn't knock him out very much. Um but yeah, they go through some like kind of squishy stuff into some better stuff and then back into some kind of more boring stuff. And it just feels like they just – it feels like they feel like the match is too long. Like they did not have 25 minutes worth of stuff to do. So I don't know why they had 25 minutes. That's really my my main note. I, I, I just – more than anything, I just thought it was way too long. They worked hard. They definitely worked hard. But it was just – they just didn't have enough to do to fill that time. Yeah, I would I would say – a match with four guys of this talent level with two existing feuds to work off shouldn't be 
Like this is, I, it's it, it's a it's okay match, but it should be way better than that. And I, I feel like this is a match that doesn't really pick up until the final five minutes, which is bad when it's a twenty five minute match. Um, it's slow. Now, the one thing I will say is they do get across the hatred. I mean, the, even they're just yelling, like arguing back and forth before the bell even rings. Even that takes a while. Like they do get across in this match that they really don't like each other, but it's a very slow, grindy kind of match. Um, and, um, like, like, like there are spots where, you know, they, a lot of times it'll just be like, you know, Credo and Homicide in a corner or Credo and Homicide like rolling around in the ropes, but not really doing much. And, and there's nothing wrong with being slow and methodical, but this was to the point of being boring. And you compare this to say Loki and Homicide versus Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe, where that was a match where it felt like full of hatred, but also felt chaotic and, and, and action packed in a really fun, exciting way and this is just feels not like that and there's also weird bits like homicide early on tags out and he won't he's like playing mind games with with colt when you would think that he should be like chomping at the bit to get at him if he hates him so much um i also feel like um that Colt was Colt's feud ends up getting a bit, a little bit overshadowed by uh, Carino. I feel like between Carino's entrance, which was great, the fact that they they're coming out to Carino's entrance music and not Colt's, you know, and just the way this match has worked, it really comes off as like the focus felt like it was more on the Carino homicide feud, and the Colt homicide feud was kind of like the sidebar. Even in the end, it's it, it's Carino getting the pin on homicide, and yeah, Colt helps out by shoving the foot homicides foot off the ropes, which kind of a heel move too, even though they're the face team, but Karina Carino is definitely treated as the star on the team here for sure. Yeah. And you know, I, I get what Gabe's trying to do here. He's trying to serve two. He's trying to build two feuds at once. He's trying to build the, the Carino homicide feud and the, the, the cold homicide feud at the same time. And I feel like when I look at the booking, I think like Gabe at this point, you know, he had already had a couple falling outs with Carino. I feel like at this point, after like the group feud, like, you know, the Carino Daniels feud, they never got a blow off to that. And then he set up the, the punk Carino feud and he never got a blow off to that. So I feel like now he's like, if I'm getting Carino back, I'm going to like immediately go to the homicide feud and I'm immediately going to do a world title match with Carino, even though there's no buildup. Cause I get the feeling that Gabe probably just felt like if I ever use Carino again, I've got to do the big matches quickly because I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I never know when I'm going to have a falling out with this guy. And so in that sense, it's okay. But I do feel like it kind of stole the focus from um, Colt. So Jeff, I mean, what did you think? I mean, again, four guys that are really, really good wrestlers, but do you agree with us about this match? Yeah, I'm in complete agreement. I love all four of these guys uh, as performers. There were, uh, there were a few things that confused me. Number one, and I noticed this on the rewatch uh, this time, I, and I don't think I noticed it when Hagedorn and I watched it, but Homicide's, like, slapping hands as he comes out, and Key is yes, standing there. Yes, I forgot to mention yeah, that. Doing the, doing the gangsta Key he gimmick. He slapped hands, yeah. Um, and, and before the show, Homicide and Key were out selling their merch, um, like, out in front of the building, and... 
It was like, like I saw Homicide out there as I was walking in, and he was like, yo, what's up? Yo, hey, come here. And I was like, aren't you out here doing a, a gimmick? Like, there was a camera out there that, that was filming them. Uh, I don't know if it made it into a video wire or what, but um, I, Jimmy Fetterman was out there filming them. So I was like, what are we doing? And then like nothing happened i saw loki and i was like uh, i'm just gonna go inside now and so like homicide comes out here he's doing his baby face thing uh i did not remember that carino and cabana came out first because i thought what they should have done is had the heels come out first and then have to sit there while Carino does his stuff with the intro. Though that always, that that always worked the best attention. in like the past where they would have to sit there and like listen to the entire like introduction. Yeah. Cause then they, they start the match out hot. Right. And I think that's what hurt this is they not only did it go way, 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 way too long. Um, but the Cabana homicide feud was the side piece. And it, it just, <laughs> I, I I love the idea of this match. I don't know if there's a way to execute it right. Even if you shave 10 minutes off this match and it's 15 minutes of bell to bell and you still do the Carino intro and the CM Punk stuff, I, I don't know if there's a way to spread homicide across both opponents. And then Loki's just there. Um, and I mean, the open contract thing that Brian was doing, and they, they had talked about it on the website at the time. Um, that's how Carino got his title shot. So we're getting mixed messages throughout the whole show as far as that goes. Um, cause I think Chris Sabin gets one yep. in November, uh, on the famous DVD cover where nobody's wearing <laughs> pants, uh, showdown in Motown. Um, but like this is a match that that really watching it back just reaffirms my opinion that Gangsta Key did not need to be around Homicide. <laughs> and Homicide did not need to be around Gangsta Key. You could continue to have both exist in this universe, but they didn't help each other. So you know, like I, I love the the match from Punk, the final chapter against Joe and Jay Lethal, but that should have been the end. Rottweilers don't have to break up; they have to go their separate ways. The other missing piece to this match that may have added some energy because I thought the crowd was really like quiet during this match because they were just waiting for something to happen was Julius Smokes. I don't think people remember or acknowledge how much Julius Smokes mattered to the homicide character. They made each other that combination. And I think obviously it's the Midwest, so they're not going to fly Julius out at this point, but not having Julius there to rile up the crowd, to get them amped up with his crazy one-liners and, bouncing around ringside, um, that hurt. And I think that when you look at a, a homicide match that's 25 minutes long 
and there is so much uh, quote unquote heat during the match uh, as opposed to you know heat from the crowd. Um, it, it takes away there, and there wasn't anything violent. They didn't go into the crowd and brawl around the building um, like they did in the Joe Lethal uh, Rottweilers tag. It it just it it didn't have the right mix, if that makes any sense. Yeah, another thing I noticed about this match too is it was sadly in some ways, even though I don't know if this should be a highlight, one of the highlights to me was I thought that there was a couple moments where I couldn't tell if like Homicide was taking liberties on Steve Carino or not, which I guess is part of the magic of their feud is that you could even think that. But like there is a moment in the corner where homicide throws a punch on Creel that lands with like a thud that feels like he's like potatoing him. And then he hits this super hard slap and Creel immediately fights back in a way that feels real. Like he's immediately like, I'm not taking any more of this. Like, like I don't want to get hit anymore like this right now. And there's also a really funny moment in this match where, Carino had a kind of a reputation, like some of his wrestlers that friend, that are friends of his would talk about, like shoots and stuff, that he would sandbag moves sometimes or stuff. And there's a move here where um Carino hits the ropes and low-key throws a drop kick, and you can see Carino as he sees the drop kick is coming, he slows down and he's he's, he's running from the ropes, and so it ends up getting mistimed, but you can see him almost being like, I don't want to take this. So he kind of like half slows down and still kind of takes it. But it's like, it's one of those things that Karina would do occasionally. That's so funny where he would kind of just decide, eh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and kind of go halfway with it. There, there's a story that I once heard um, from Samoa Joe. And this was in 2000. He was in TNA when this, when he told this story, but uh, he said that, that the two biggest asses in Ring of Honor were Steve Carino and Adam Pierce, and I thought, you know, I've been around Pierce. He's a good guy, you know, fun to be around. Always, you know, got some fun one-liners, and I never really was around Steve or got to know him until he became an announcer. So that was, you know, years after this. And as he's telling this story, I'm realizing he's not talking about their personalities. <laughs> He's talking about their physical attributes. And I, I just, it threw me off. But this is a match where it's noticeable, where like Carino kind of satchel asses himself through some of that stuff because he doesn't want to get kicked by Key or get punched by Homicide. He, he sandbags it a little bit. And I just never really put two and two together. But yeah, Joe explained that. And yeah. I, thought that was rather fascinating because I'm not really watching wrestling matches looking to see who has the largest ass. <laughs> it's too bad that Carino came to uh, ECW so many years after the Big Ass Extreme Bash. Yeah. Which was the name of one of the shows, yes. <laughs> well played. Well played. So the Torch had a quote after this Carino double shot, which I thought was a little bit funny from Gabe. Uh, the Torch wrote at the time, one of Ring of Honor's early top stars, Steve Carino, returned to Ring of Honor last weekend, losing to Brian Danielson in the Buffalo, New York main event. 
Quote, Steve Cradle is a true star. Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Sapolsky tells PW Torch, we've had our problems in the past, and I'm sure we'll have problems in the future. <laughs> as Steve likes things done his way, and I like things done my way, but he is a true talent and credit to any company he works for. His tag match with Colt Cabana versus Loki on and Homicide on Friday was intense, and the world title match versus Danielson on Saturday was a classic. So, Gabe maybe upselling things a little bit there, but I do love that even Gabe had like, like full awareness at this point. Like, yeah, this won't last. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to fight again. Self fulfilling um, prophecy, right there. Yeah. Well, and 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 two, like that's one thing I, I will give Gabe credit for. He always used people, whether he had a problem or a history with them, if they could help make the company money. He was willing to do business with them, and he put him over in the press. Like he said, like he's a true talent yeah. and a credit. So he, he's not he's not burying him either. He just knows, like, hey, we butt heads, but he's a good dude to have around. I mean, there were there's another guy in this match that literally is the the yep. exact same story, Loki. Yeah, um, you know, except Loki, once he was gone, he gone. Although I mean, they did have one falling out that they came back from, but yeah, then we're then there's the second that yeah, there's no coming back. Although didn't he book Key and like evolve once or something? Even like I know yeah. he did Teddy Hart once. So even those you could argue in a long enough timeline, Gabe eventually, if he feels like there's a, a match to make, you know, will come back to a guy. Even well, that's like Vince McMahon too, right? He did like every, yeah. that's yeah. the story with him, right? He'll if eventually money talks. Yep, and if if there's an opportunity to make money, then you have to take advantage of it. And you know, as as far as Loki goes, um, I believe he did more than one appearance at Evolve. But I know the one that was the end, he was wrestling some big jacked up dude whose name I don't remember, but uh, Larry Dallas was managing him, and he did the rolling kick that he does, and he knocked the guy out like shoot. Knocked him out, oh, God. and that was the end of that. So, <laughs> um, I, I think he—I don't even know if he's in wrestling anymore. I'm not sure. But uh, after the match, Carino took off a uh, Punk's trunks. He laid them down in the center of the ring like he's like Punk's retired, which was funny. And then uh, after the match, it's intermission, and Dave Prezak is backstage with Nigel McGuinness. Nigel is very pissed off about losing tonight, and he calls it nothing but a fluke. He says he only lost because it wasn't pure title rules, and next time they wrestle, it will be, so then he's going to kick his ass. Nigel then focuses on Samoa Joe, who he defends the pure title against tomorrow. Nigel says the fans love to sing Joe's going to kill you, and they did that last time they wrestled, but Nigel didn't die. He became champ. Nigel starts to say he's the best there is, the best there was, but Prezak goes, whoa, 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 and cuts him off before he can say the final line, as was the gimmick at this point, that there is no way you could possibly finish that entire line. They'll get sued, but uh, <laughs> that was the little promo there. And moving on, Davey, coming back from intermission, we get the students, Davey Andrews and Shane Hagedorn went and faced off against Derek Dempsey and Pele Primo, went to a no contest in about a minute. Uh, these guys do about one minute of basic wrestling when the lights go out, the embassy's music hits, and out walks Prince Nana. He asks who would want to watch a match featuring a bunch of guys trained by somebody who didn't even have the balls to stay in the company. A few fans actually clapped at that, by the way. A lot uh, of CM Punk references tonight, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Nana only has three words for you, the embassy forever. 
He's dug into his Ganamite to bring out this man, Abyss. Abyss walks into the ring and all four students jump him at once. He easily fights them off and Nana hits Pally with a double arm DDT for good measure. Uh, Nana begins to gloat on the mic when one, the one student that's left in the ring, Davey Andrews, spears him, rains down punches, but Abyss makes the save and just kills Andrews with a black hole slam. Nana breaks that there is no one in the building that can handle Abyss. Jack Evans comes out at this point with Jade Chung at his side. Jack gives her his hat and ha- he instructs her to wear it to the side so that she can look cool. He's just really helping her out like a big brother. It worked. Jack- it worked. He looked cool with the sideways hat. <laughs> <laughs> Jack says, this is David versus Goliath, but he doesn't need a rock. His fist can do the damage. And that brings us to Abyss taking on Jack Evans with Jay Chung via pinball in two minutes, 32 seconds after Abyss hit a black, black hole slam. A very short match where uh, Jack got a bunch of the offense, including a dive to the floor. Sort of like the Matt Striker special where the guy that's getting squashed gets to do a bunch of offense before they get absolutely murdered. At one point, Nana threw a chair in the ring and Abyss laid it on Evans and he went to run the ropes and then hit like a running butt drop. And Jack just turns the chair so it's sitting on its side and so Abyss crotches himself on it. Uh, Eventually, Abyss catches a hand-springing Jack. And while he's in mid handspring, he picks him up on his shoulders, drops him while he's on his shoulders, and then hits a very long rotation black call slam for the win. After that match, uh, Nana tells Abyss to finish off Jack and kill him. When Jay Chung throws herself over top of Jack to protect him, Nana then instructs Abyss to kill Jade, and he pulls Jade off by her hair. But just when he's about to attack her, Rod Strong runs in the ring takes Abyss out, followed by a Nana with a half-Nelson backbreaker. So yeah, I just ran this all together, because really not much of matches either. These just basically one kind of long angle to further the uh, Gen Next Embassy feud. Um, Entertaining for what it was, I was kind of sad for um, the students as usual, where it seems like any time the students are out there on the main card, it's just to get absolutely murdered by somebody else in short order. And granted, they were just students, but it seems like that was their only role at this point. Although you could see even at this point that they wanted Davey Andrews. They saw bigger things for Davey Andrews because they give him the one offensive spot that any student gets on this on this show. But overall, I mean, my, you know, it, it's not really that substantial, any of this, but an entertaining enough interlude, I would guess I would say. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about all of us getting to see this live? So, number one, Abyss is a monster, like size-wise. He is a – like when you see him next to a Peli Primo, uh, it is uh, – it's almost like an optical illusion. Um, Peli with the short hair was also kind of – shocking revelation uh because i had forgotten his hair was that short um but this is first class of the roh academy against the second class um in this match and you know nana rarely got physical so to see him uh grab pelly and hit his double arm ddt driver to him he had a name for that too when he wrestled and i i can't for the life of me think of it what it was but um you know, that was, was interesting because he never really got physical. He always had everybody else kind of doing his dirty work for him. Um, I love the, the, the match with Jack and Abyss um, because it's like the perfect contrast 
for the Gen Next Embassy feud. Uh, the uh, double rotation black hole slam is always really impressive. Anytime you get to see him do that. Um, I want to say it may have been Kid Cash in TNA the first time I saw him do that. And I just, like, that was one of those things where you just rewound the videotape over and over to watch. Um, as far as, like, blending it into the angle, uh, you know, Jade as kind of this the, the lady friend of uh, Jack Evans was odd. I, I didn't think that worked, and they, they pivoted from that later on to Jade and Roddy, um, which, I mean, that's just as weird, but whatever. Um, I don't know why that was a necessary story item uh, that they had to go with. It didn't help anybody. Uh, but yeah, um, Roddy saving Jack and, and Jade and then hitting the half Nelson backbreaker on Nana, which takes him out of the, the tag upcoming. Um, solid story mover. And, and uh, you know, it sucks when the students get on the show and then don't get to have a match. Yeah. Which is which was the norm at this point, it seemed like. It was either Ricky Reyes or somebody um, fo- yep. foiling their attempt to actually have a wrestling match. Um, now, keep in mind, like, they're working other places other weekends, but... You know, this is a weekend in their careers that they can't develop because they have to drive the truck, set up the show, tear down the ring, drive to the next show, do the same thing over and over, and then drive back to Philly. And, you know, that's not necessarily a, a, a complete stunting of their growth. Like, they can never get on the shows. But still, it's one weekend out of the, or, you know, a couple, three, four weekends out of a couple month timeline that. They're not able to get out there and wrestle for 15, 20 minutes. I guess it's one of the ways that the wrestling business, like, I don't want to use the word cons, but, like, maybe cons young wrestlers by telling them that it's all just part of paying your dues instead mm-hmm. of just, like, you know, stealing labor, I guess, like, from from them. But, um, yeah, so let me ask you this, everybody. Um, do you, So, obviously, like, with Abyss, like, the way they booked him here is just classic wrestling stuff. You have a monster, you put him over a smaller guy, you have him squash somebody to build him up. The thing is, Abyss was going to be treated as a monster no matter what because he's so much bigger than everybody else. I mean, Trevor, I'll let you guess, but like, so I think Abyss is the second tallest wrestler on a Ring of Honor show that we've reviewed so far. Who was the tallest, Trevor? Do you remember? Would that be Slugga? Okay, well, actually, I think Abyss is taller than Slugga. Um, but there was the what there was anti slug slugga, but I I I wasn't mega. Thinking, uh, yeah, I, yes, exactly. I wasn't thinking of him though. There was another guy. Um, it's the, the guy from Boston. And I yeah, guess Matt. What his name Matt, Thompson. Matt Thompson. Matt Thompson. Yes, he was a true friend. giant. He was the guy that Tony Mamaluke should have been the tag team champions with. Um, but, yes, yes, they looked exactly alike. That's right. But um, I will say this, like. Do you think that maybe it would have been better if instead of doing the obvious move, which is the squash, of actually letting Jack Evans and Abyss get 10 minutes instead of having the 10 extra minutes on the tag match we just reviewed? Like, they really did some good fun stuff together. I I wonder if they could have actually gotten a really entertaining 10-minute match out of those two. What do you think? 
part of me feels like they could have, but then we just reviewed a double shot, the, the Joe Kobashi weekend, where we talked about how, even though I enjoyed both those singles matches Jack Evans had that weekend, we talked about you, especially like they kind of showed that, you know, Jack Evans, when you see him in a full length singles match, kind of has some, you know, at this point in his at career, that point, he wasn't at that point. Yeah. Yeah. At, at that point, he didn't have, um, he wasn't a complete wrestler and maybe wasn't as, as good at structuring a, a singles match as he would become. And so part of me wonders, like on one hand, part, I agree. Like part of me watches this and goes, man, that was so fun for like two something minutes might be, I would have loved to have seen 10, but, but then part of me wonders if you had to stretch that out to 10, maybe we would have seen flaws in it. You know, maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm not maybe, sure. Maybe seven then. I feel like they could yeah, have maybe. Seven, you know, yeah. I feel like that was just so short for what it was. I mean, obviously I know they have more interactions the next night in their big, you know, crazy brawl, but, um, I don't know, just cause after seeing how long, overly long the Carino, uh, Cabana Rottweilers match was and thinking like, ah, oh, well, you know, this is something they could have given some of that time to. It just made me think of that. The other thing that I thought was interesting was, so obviously they're writing Nana out of the next match. He's not going to be part of the next match. And which is unusual, right? Cause he's adds just like, Smokes adds so much to the homicide matches. Nana adds a lot to the Jimmy Rave matches. Do you think this was like sort of done almost as a test to see how Rave and Shelly could just do with the heel stuff without Nana there to add the heat? Absolutely. I'm not sure. It's interesting. Absolutely. I absolutely do. It makes sense because, well, I mean, we'll get to it in a minute, but I feel like they do a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that brings us right. Oh, go on. I, I just wanted to, to say, like, as far as adding time to a Jack Evans match um, in this period, I, I don't know. I, I think seven minutes might be like the absolute max. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Makes sense. Once he gets to Dragon Gate and kind of goes through that programming um, and then comes back. I think that's when you can really you could have done something more than just this. Right, right. Um I think too with Jack on his own he still hadn't put it all together and I I was with him after this show um you know going to Buffalo the next day and boy that was oof. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but um, I I just think that when you have somebody like Jack who is so athletically gifted and then you have this complete contrast in Abyss, even if you took five or six minutes from that tag match, the tag match is no better, I don't think. And I don't know if extending this little storyline builder really is going to sell the sell more dvds sell more of the story than what you got here i think that earthquake um spot with the chair was like the perfect way to just lead into the finish of the match it was jack getting his last you know dying breath of offense before abyss kills him with the black hole slam and and that's it um save everybody for tomorrow for the crazy brawl in buffalo yeah, which the yeah, um, and that actually brings us to the uh, tag match with the Embassy. Uh, Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe defeated the Embassy of Alex Shelley and Jimmy Rave with no Prince Nana. He got taken out, and uh, Lethal and Joe win in 19 minutes 59 seconds, so just a second shy of 20 minutes. When Joe pins Shelley after he hit the Muscle Buster, 
Um, Matt, what do you think about this match? I mean, you just kind of alluded to uh, it was let the the embassy guys kind of show off their heel stuff without Nana there to kind of be the backbone of the character work. Yeah, and they do a great job. Like they really do. Um, I mean, you posted something um, like you mentioned earlier on your Twitter of. You know, there was a se- a sequence early in the match where Shelly and Rave both try chopping Samoa Joe, and he just kind of stands there because he had just been chopped by Kenta Kobashi, so he wasn't going to be phased by Jimmy Rave or Ali Shelly. And so, like, Rave just chops him, like, a bunch of times repeatedly. Joe stands there, and Rave just leaves the ring. And then Shelly actually kind of takes his lead and, like, does that a few times, too. And they have a really fun sequence there, and that, you know, gets over so big with the crowd. Um, right at the beginning of the match, you get a lot of the toilet paper. They've definitely, like, upped the toilet paper game now. Like, they're really, you know, we're not at the point where there's just full, like, like, a sea of toilet paper yet, but there's a lot of it. And, um, so you get just, just rave, especially, I think, just, like, really kind of, he was almost like a general in terms of, like, the heel stuff in the match. Shelly was good, too. I mean, Shelly hadn't been in an ROH match in a while, uh, at least since their Midwest double shot back in uh back in august so this is his first match back and he seems to be having a lot of fun he has really cool tights here the stuff that i don't remember seeing him wear that much in roh but like he brings back his um his what he calls it the skull fuck right move yeah. which he does um, onto lethal like they they spent a lot of time getting heat on lethal um uh, at, <laughs> there's a really funny thing like that rave does um he gets uh he gets um some sort of move on Lethal, and Rave covers him, and Lethal kicks out, and Rave is really mad, like, to the point, like, you never see Rave in this mode, but he, he screams at the refs, like, come on, what is your problem? Which, I don't remember him ever, like, going to that place before, but he he really seemed, like, really upset, but I found it extremely funny, because it was almost, it was almost incongruent with the moment, that level of intensity, so I thought that was funny. Um, but at one point, um, another funny thing on commentary, Prazak says that Rave has been using the spear lately because he was at Nana's palace and he was using actual spears there, but he knew he'd be disqualified if he used actual spears in a match, which, true, I think he would have been disqualified. <laughs> now, now, is that a problematic statement or line or joke? Um, yeah, probably, but... It was it was funny in two thousand five, but yes, the uh, the whole spear thing probably not probably a bit of a no no now. Um, but um, yeah, so but but basically, um, the, so the so the uh, the embassy is doing a lot of good heel stuff. Um, Joe is not you know full bore like hardcore hard hitting Samoa Joe. I mean, he just had two matches with Kenny Kobashi. Give the guy a break, but he does like just exactly what he needs to do to be effective in this match. And he really lets lethal carry the load with a lot of the selling and a lot of the comebacks. And I think lethal does a good job. I think in the end, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward formula. heel face tag team match, but it's really, really good. And it makes me wonder like if they had gone the route of like these two teams being able to feud for the tag team titles, like they probably could have even had like a more like epic, like ROH style, like throw everything in the kitchen sink kind of match and been a classic as it stands. This is just a really, I think a really good match. Yeah. I, I thought this was a good match. It's, it's interesting. Like looking around at the, uh, the, the reaction to this match, how it's been reviewed. I know some people like you guys that are honorable mentions will show 
we'll get to. Love this match. I've seen some reviews online where people don't like this match that, like, they don't hate it, but they don't see anything special out of it at all. I'm kind of little Miss Red Riding Hood here. I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm looking for a porch that's just right when it comes to this review. I that's, think that, I think you're mixing up your fairy tales. That's, that, that I believe would be Goldilocks. Oh, god damn. Oh. <laughs> The, the, we gotta I'm so podcast. confused. We gotta re, we gotta do this whole podcast over anyway. So well, we've had Disney references. Who owns that material now? <laughs> Amazon's property. I'm... So I, I think this match is good. Um, it, it's interesting in the sense of watching this back. Like my favorite stuff in this match. I think I've talked about this before with with Shelley and Rave. Is I felt like they brought out a really fun goofy side of each other before and i've said like not in terms of in-ring work wise but my favorite alex shelley character is not like cool heel alex shelley or like baby face in a, in like the motor city machine guns alex shelley it is it is kind of snively evil but kind of cowardly heel alex shelley and i love the shtick he and rave always seem to do together like in this match you know the tagging out to each other and not wanting to fight certain guys hugging each other at one point like just just they the, to me that's the fair that's all in the first part of the match and that's some of my favorite stuff or even early on at the start of the match where the toilet paper gets thrown in the ring and alex shelley stuffs his trunks with it and then later he takes the the toilet paper out of his pants and throws it at his opponent and then i think joe like puts it in his mouth and and all the i mean in shelly's mouth and just i mean it's goofy stuff like that and actually when the match became more of a traditional match i liked it less even though it's a, it's a perfectly solid tag match i i felt like my favorite stuff i could have just watched all day those two and and that spot i put that on twitter where rave throws a bunch of chops to joe joe no sells him and rave just immediately tags out that got like 60 something thousand views and it, and it's such a just the to me it's like my favorite spot on this entire show and it's just such a character in a way it sums up rave so well because it's not some big flashy move or some crazy going 90 miles an hour spot it's just a very simple piece of character work and it's just so satisfying and fun and i got so many people i was so glad like I occasionally, when I see a spot like that, that's really fun. I'll just throw it up on Twitter. And I was just so happy that it caught on because probably because people were in a mood to reminisce about Rave. I was so happy to see so many people that were saying like, Oh, I've never seen Jimmy Rave before. And this is really fun. Like that, that made the idea that that was got some exposure. I was really happy with. Um, I thought the match itself though, like it, it was a very simple kind of, standard match where yeah jay lethal sells a lot as the face in peril joe kind of picks his spots in this match and i do feel like we were in the the portion of joe's career where i always feel like physically wrestlers have four stages of the career they have the first stage which is they can go 100 percent every night then there's stage two where you can go 100 percent a lot of nights but you kind of have to you can't go it every night you have to pick it you can choose then there's the third stage of your career where you can still go 100 percent, but maybe only once a month or even up to like once every three months once a year and then there's the fourth stage of the career where you're still wrestling but no matter how hard you try you can't ever quite go 100 percent what you used to i feel like joe in ring of honor at least he was entering stage two where matches like this like obviously we had just seen with the joe versus kobashi matches he could still be the greatest wrestler in the world 
But he was reaching a different point in his career, at least in Ring of Honor, where he had other priorities with TNA. He was starting to get hurt a bit more. You know, the Ring of Honor was running more shows. And I think you see matches like this where, like you were saying, Matt, he does enough. You know, he, he, and if you notice, he's in the moments he's in, he's not the one taking the big beating. That's Jay Lethal. He comes in for the little comebacks. He comes in for the hot tag. He comes in for the finish. And it is funny where it was almost like Joe felt guilty that he couldn't do everything because when Joe is in, he's working really fast. It's almost like, I'm only in so much, so I'm going to like do all the stuff I usually do, but I'm going to do it like bang, 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 just because I'm going to try and make up for like what I'm not in with, with just speed and tempo. And, you know, there's no shame in, in reaching that second gear of your career where, you know, I can't do everything every night. And there's an art to knowing I'm going to give you just enough to make you feel like, yeah, I got to see Samoa Joe tonight, but yeah, you're not, he is not the focal point of this match. It's the other three guys are kind of carrying more of the load. He's coming in for some of the highlights. And I I thought as a whole wrestling match, it was good, but man, I just, maybe it's just where I'm at as a wrestling fan, but I, my highlights was really all that early stuff. I could have watched 20 minutes of Raven Shelley just goofing off. Uh, Jeff, I know you really like this match, so... 20 minutes? I could have gone for an hour and 45 <laughs> minutes of that stuff. Are you kidding me? Like, I I absolutely adore this match. And last night, I was getting ready to go to bed and kind of looking, as I do every day. I guess technically it was this morning, but nevertheless. Um, I was getting ready to go to bed. And I always review my calendar for the next day so that when I wake up, I know what time limits I have to do certain things. So, like, my calendar for today said gym closes at 3. Why it's closing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon the day after Christmas, I have no idea. I'm not going to question it. I'm just going to go with it. So, you know, I had my workout. I went to the grocery store. I did all this stuff. But as I was laying in bed, I was thinking of all the greatest wrestling matches in Cleveland. And I thought of Sean and Vader uh, from SummerSlam. I thought of uh, Foley and Undertaker from the same show where Paul Bear turned uh, on The Undertaker. Uh, Boiler Room Brawl, I believe. Uh, I thought of RVD and Jeff Hardy from the Invasion pay-per-view. And then I think of this match. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you one single match that was on Dynamite when AEW ran here. But um, I think this may be one of the best matches in wrestling in Cleveland ever. Um, and I know that might be speaking hyperbole, but because uh, there were some other Ring of Honor shows that had some really great matches. Um, but this one in particular, I thought was off the charts. It had everything I love about wrestling. Heels being self-deprecating, such as the chop spot with Raven Shelley alternating and trying to tag each other out. Then Jimmy goes to the crowd and, uh, you know, wants to have a conversation with the guy in the first row. Uh, you had the toilet paper interaction uh, with the crowd. Not a lot of toilet paper, enough uh, for where they were at with the story and that kind of act. Then you had Joe and Lethal coming out in matching tights, 
looking like a well-oiled machine. You had Joe coming off the single greatest match in Ring of Honor history, and then uh, a really fun tag match the next night. So, of course, he's going to dial it back. He plays the hits, and he has the crowd in the palm of his hand. Um, I think, you know, in Ring of Honor history, that's the one thing you can look at and say about the main event guys, Joe, Punk, Brian, Nigel, Homicide, um, that has been missing in recent years is that that main event guy could do whatever he wanted and the crowd just followed along like, uh, you know, a a school of fish. And I, I think this match... You had Jay Lethal become a star. Um, you even had like Chandler Biggins heckling at ringside and and pulling out something I had heard for the first time probably in 2001, um, where J-Rock, uh, Ring of Honor alumni, and uh, local Northeast Ohio legend uh, of the Indies, uh, Chandler Biggins would manage him and he would yell, let's give it up for J-Rock. But instead, this time, it's, let's give it up for Jay lethal And that popped me. Um, Shelly yelling at him because he, you know, Chandler's heckling him about being from Michigan. So Shelly's going back and forth. Now, mind you, Alex Shelly would not work for AIW because he had an issue with Chandler based off of this until Chandler passed away. Wow. Yeah, because in this match, he is really giving it to Shelly. And when, when I was talking earlier about uh, how some of the wrestlers actually acknowledge him, Alex Shelly is one of them. Because, like, early on, like, he, you know, Chandler is from the crowd. You could clearly hear he's making the comment, like, uh, like I, I think Shelly is getting on his knees in the move, and, and Chandler makes some comment, like, you know, he's used to being on his knees or something like that. And Joe actually starts laughing on the apron into his arm, and you can see mm-hmm. Shelly kind of acknowledge. So you're saying, like, Shelly got pissed that he was... Shelly was furious. Wow. And I am almost 100% in saying he did not work for AIW uh, until Chandler had passed away in 2016, I think. Uh, Shelly didn't come in until after that to do a show. I mean, he um, was relentless on Shelly in this match. He was, and that was normal when Chandler was in the crowd and not promoting. Um, that was just par for the course. Um, why he chose to dress as a man in black, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, right down to the sunglasses, there he was. Um but as far as the wrestling of this match goes, Jay Lethal came off like a star. And it it was something that had always been missing, was that extra oomph behind Jay Lethal. But him fighting off Shelly, uh, making that appropriate hot tag to Joe when Joe comes in, hits the big power slam. Jay comes back in, does the running suplex, you know, goes right up top for the diving headbutt. Um, I thought Jay really shined in this match. Uh, I love the springboard DDT that he hit at the end. Um, the other like non in ring part of this match that I thought was hysterical, you know, all these years later, uh, 16 years later, 
Um, this is the only show I ever took my younger brother to. Um, and I guess, you know, he's my only brother. So my brother, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's the only show I ever took him to. And he was 15 or 16. I'm trying to think around this time. And he maintained, I, I tried to watch for his reactions to things because he's somewhat of a wrestling fan. He loves orange Cassidy. Um, but you know, that's, you know, nowadays, but he has the same reaction on his face the whole show. The whole show. It's like he, he's there as a hostage or something. And I, I remember when his, his real highlight comes after the show. But um, the idea that this match is taking place in front of him and he is not reacting to anything at all stunned me. Because this had everything that a wrestling fan would want. Comedy, heel babyface, good act, like really, really good action, you know, cool moves. Joe and his just infectious charisma, um, playing all of his favorite hits. Jimmy Rave hitting Joe with gonorrhea of all things, um, and then the running knee and getting a two count. Uh, Shelly doing snot rockets, the toilet paper, you know, stuffing his trunks with the toilet paper. Um, you know, the, the, the baby faces foil the heels and hit them with a, you know, the double noggin knocker. Uh, so you had a little bit of like every trope in wrestling in this match. And I think that's the Ring of Honor style in definition is a little bit of everything and not too much of one thing dominating a match. I, I absolutely adore this match. It's, I, I would say, you know, in my top five or ten tag team matches in ROH history. Wow. Um, and that brings us to the main event, the Ring of Honor World title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title when he defeats Austin Aries via submission in 30 minutes and 19 seconds when he made Aries tap out to the crossface chicken wing. Um, Matt, we've seen a bunch of these matches. This is the fourth. If you, if you count the uh, survival of the fittest final, the final little stretch run they had, which is like nearly, I think, like 20 minutes as, as a match. This is their fourth match in Ring of Honor in a little over a year. Where do you think this one st- stacks up? I mean, it's the second longest, although second by a great distance, seeing how their longest was over 70 minutes. But what do you think about this one? Well, so... You know, I had strong memories, you know, before we started doing this show of the survival of the fittest match, of the testing the limit match, of the nowhere to run match, of some of their 2007 matches. I didn't have strong memories of this match. So my, I was going in expecting it to not be that good, but I think it definitely exceeded my expectations a lot. Like I thought this was a darn, a darn good main event. Um, you know, Danielson was still finding himself in terms of like what his position would be as champion. I thought Aries was actually a little bit adrift too in terms of character. Like what was he at this point? You know, cause even with the, um, the embassy feud, he wasn't the focal point of that feud, you know, really strong was in a lot of ways. Um, so like these, these two guys were both sort of like, what am I right now? And I think they ended up having a really, I mean, they're just such great wrestlers. Like that's the thing. 
And Danielson, you could see that even though he wasn't totally his, his character yet, you would see the bits and pieces of it. You know, he definitely did, you know, the I have till five referee stuff. He got real vicious at different points. You know, he's not like, he's not just like bland, nobody guy. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's showing personality. I actually thought Aries showed less personality than usual, but his wrestling was great. Like he, you know, he's, and, and, and I think, you know, this, so for a long match, like I knew this was going to be 30 minutes. I thought maybe I'd be bored with it. I wasn't. Um, I thought they told a good story with, um, you know, with Aries' arm, and eventually, you know, that led to the cattle mutilation, and eventually the um, the crossface chicken wing, and the very quick tap out. Um, you know, there there were some really some cool reversals, some cool spots here. I mean, you know, they didn't reinvent the wheel or anything, but this was just like a really well executed match. Um, I, I there was some funny stuff at the beginning. First of all, Gabe Sapolsky. Uh, did commentary for this match because he likes to get in on the main events sometimes. And he said that there's, quote, nothing sexy about Brian Danielson. Now, I know there, <laughs> I know there are a lot of people in 2021 who would strongly disagree with that statement, right? Like that, like I, there to a subset of wrestling fans, there's plenty sexy about Brian Danielson. But I guess at the time, that's sort of what he was going for, right? Like I am just like a, bland person that you don't want to look at but i'm a great wrestler but i think a lot of people like to look at brian danielson um but then maybe that maybe that has to do with like i said before he got a little bit more stylish i don't know also he just carries himself with so much confidence now um he had a different kind of confidence back then um they also praise act when he said that he responded by saying that danielson looks better now because he got rid of that quote stupid looking beard and but i'm thinking That's- like hey that beard made brian danielson a lot of money uh, later on in his career, uh, I so. think you're, I think you cut out for just a second, Matt. You could just repeat yeah. what Prazak said. Oh, he said that Danielson had a quote stupid looking beard, and and I'm thinking like that stupid looking beard made Danielson a lot of money uh, later on in his career. So I don't know how stupid looking it was, but besides that, yeah, th- these two guys just had a match, like just like a classic like babyface versus babyface world title match, and. The, the, I just thought they did a great job. Like I, you know, again, like this match, it didn't have the heat or the emotional hook that their best matches had, and it wasn't innovative like the testing the limit match was. And I think that once their characters are more firmly developed, like some of their 2007 matches during that series would you know exceed this a bit. But considering the expectations that I had, the fact that there was not going to be a lot of drama about what the outcome would be, right? Nobody for a second thought that Danielson was going to lose his first title defense. I thought he looked great, and I thought it was I thought it was a quite good wrestling match, like just like a good main event. Again, like not something that will go down in history as one of the greatest, especially considering these two had so many great matches. But just like just like they did a good job with what they with what they had handed to them like they just did a good job and they're good wrestlers and this was a good match yeah i would put this match not at the level of their first two survive the fist or testing the limit but i would put this at the level of their nowhere to run match maybe slightly better than the nowhere to run match or maybe the same they're they're different matches but you know four maybe four and a quarter but like great low great match really enjoyable um, the thing I, this match obviously does not have the hook of the first two matches. I, I, I mentioned that with the nowhere to run match too, which is, and this match has the same problem, which is 
yeah, there, you don't have the, it's not like the testing limit match where you feel like, oh shit, this is like someone's breakout star performance for Aries. Or you don't have the craziness of, oh my god, they're going so long, like testing the limit. This is just a straightforward world title defense. And in some ways, it's really Ring of Honor main event formula by the numbers. It's, it's, um, you know, feeling out process for like five to seven minutes. Then one guy works over a by part. The other guy works over a, the, another body part. And then you go back and forth and ramp up to the finish. It, it, it very, it feels like the structure we've seen in a lot of Ring of Honor main events without anything necessarily new, but it's done very well. And I, I think one of my biggest praises for this match is it's 30 minutes and I was never bored. Like my attention never wavered once. And never, sometimes even never. in matches I really enjoy, like my attention will waver it for a minute or here or there. Like not at all on this one. Um, even the first five to seven minutes, which is more of that feeling out period is full of these really little touches. Like Danielson's great at adding weight to moves. The other guys just toss out like, Watch him on spots like a simple test of strength where he, you know, he throws in the headbutts to make it seem like a real battle of wills. Or he'll sweep a guy's leg or step on a guy's knee or their arm or something to get them into a position he wants them to be in. Like, he doesn't wait for his opponent to do it themselves. He, like, forces them into the positions he wants them to be in. It's just little stuff like that that makes a match more entertaining and more like a struggle and kept me engaged even in the slower minutes of this match. Um, I, I there, and you know, there's neat spots within the match. Like I like near the end where Aries is going for the brain buster and, um, Danielson's kneeing him while he has him lifted up in the air. He's kneeing him in the, Danielson's kneeing him in the head to counter, but Aries still powers through and hits the brain buster. And I thought that was really cool because so often when a guy goes for a suplex or a rain or a brain buster, you either see the guy hit it or you see something like the knee to the head and the guy immediately drops it. And here they did both. They did where, yeah, you need me in the head. I'm still going to hit this thing. And I liked at the very end where, you know, where, um, Aries is charging at Danielson and Danielson's back to the corner. He hits that Japanese arm drag where Aries goes real fast right into the buckles on the arm drag. I thought that was really cool. Um, one interesting thing was they, they, they tried to do the crucifix driver. And for the second straight match these two guys had, it comes off bad. Like last time at Nowhere to Run, they tried to do the crucifix driver out of the airplane spin and it didn't look good at all. It kind of fell apart. This time they try and do the crucifix driver. And instead, Danielson, rather than taking a bump that looks more on your shoulders or head, Danielson just kind of falls on Aries. It was like, there's just something about that spot on the last couple of matches. These guys couldn't quite make it go together. I would say why it's not like why I would call this match great, but why it's not like top tier great is because there just seemed to be a little something missing. Even as they do a few bigger things in the final minutes, like it never felt like they were hitting like a new super crazy level. And even the crowd, like the crowd was into this match the whole way, but like they weren't really that much more into it in the final minutes as they were in the opening minutes, which is kind of like to me, the story of this match where it just kind of was good the whole way through, but it didn't really maybe have that crazy peak that just leaves you walking away going, holy shit, what did I just see? The way maybe some of their, their first two matches did. Um, and yeah, before I give it to you, Jeff, I, I think the last thing I'll mention is touching on what you said, Matt, about the uh, the commentary. I thought it was really interesting to listen to Gabe Bargent. First off, 
you know, because most of this show was Lenny and, and Prezak and Gabe just joins for the main event. First off, I like that Gabe interrupted and he says, Lenny has cost me this job. And then Prezak says something like, you know, this running joke they've been doing where like, you're, you're drinking in the stand, you're, you're drinking, aren't you? And, and, and Gabe goes, no, I was just in the stands enjoying this show, which he's been saying for a lot of shows. So I like in storyline now, the idea was that in storyline at this point, in canon, Gabe Sapolsky as Jimmy Bauer is a former commenter for Ring of Honor that got fired, perhaps for being an alcoholic, but he now still watches the shows from the stands, and he just, like, barges into the commentary booth sometimes when he feels like it. And, like, he, travels, I, I, and he travels the country to go to all these shows, despite not getting... <laughs> yeah, it's a, when you think about what he's implying, the way they talk about this, it's a really bizarre character for, for, for old Jimmy Bauer. Yes. But also, like you were touching on that... Um, I really thought was interesting was Gabe really goes through like kind of harshly about Danielson. And we, we read recently when Danielson became champion, an excerpt from his book. Yes. About how Gabe, before he became champion, never really saw Danielson as the kind of guy you would make champion. He saw him as a really talented guy that he pushed hard whenever he was around, but he didn't see him as that guy. And you can kind of hear Gabe basically lay out why, because Gabe on commentary said, basically says, even Brian will admit he's not the most marketable champion. There's nothing sexy about Brian Danielson, as you said, Matt. He's not the smoothest dresser in the world. He doesn't have the best haircut. He doesn't have a tan. And he really goes into it. And in a way, it's funny because what you realize Gabe is doing is he's marketing Brian Danielson as being not marketable. Like, like that's the selling point. Right, is right, the, it's almost like the Candido no gimmicks needed thing. It's the idea that he's so unmarketable, you know he has to be good. And the way I would put it is, I don't know if you guys have this in America. Do you have Buckley's cold medicine in America? Not that I'm aware. I'm never, of. I'm so, never sick, so I can't, I can't comment. Oh, <laughs> look at you, never sick. <laughs> um, Knocking Buckley, on wood right now. <laughs> Buckley during the most infectious uh, virus yes. spreading ever. You say this? Yeah, don't. Tempt me. Yes, I'm. But, I'm knocking on on wood over and but, over. Buckley's cold medicine in Canada is this cold medicine, and there was a once a famous ad campaign for it where they would just say, it tastes awful, but it works. And the selling point was kind of like, hmm. you know if we're telling you it tastes like shit and we're not trying to hide it, you know it must be good. And I feel like on commentary, that was Gabe's basically approach to Danielson. Was he was basically like nagging Danielson. He was basically like calling him down from all these different reasons. And basically the implication was, if I'm telling you like he's not marketable, he doesn't look the right way, he doesn't do this and doesn't do that, you know, you know he must be amazing then. Because why else would he be champion? Like, like the I think that was kind of the wink. Why else would I book this guy to be champ if I'm telling you all this shit about him about how he's not marketable? And I thought it was a really fascinating moment. It's on it's, it's it's a classic thing. Like there's like there have been plenty of things that have been marketed that way. Like you're right. Like that's a good example. The one that you said. I I know there are other products that are marketed that way. Like this is just like this is not flashy at all. It's kind of crummy looking. So it must be good. Like I just I'm blanking on what some of those products were. I'm sure some listeners will jog our memories of like different things that are marketed that way but yeah i mean in some ways that's a classic thing like this this there's there's not a lot of sizzle so the steak must be really really good right like that's sort of the uh, yeah of course we know deep down there's plenty of sizzle with brian Daniels. yeah exactly but like but yes it's it's a sell it's the way to sell it and it worked it worked like a charm so it also really tells you what gabe thought of 
Ryan, I think, you know, in that sense, he was very aware of that kind of, of those perceived, even though like we agree, some of those perceived faults were overstated or non-existent, but like he was very aware, I think, of, of what Brian's detractors would say about him. So yeah, going finally, Jeff, to you, what did you think about all of this? So I, I love the match. Um, I do think it's probably right on par with that nowhere to run match. Um, it's different, which I think if you watch Brian Danielson from the start of his career until where he's at now, he's never had the same match twice. Uh, he is a wrestling artist. Um, one of the, the things that kind of occurred to me, and it's I find it really funny that we're all on the same kind of wavelength of, of the way Gabe was marketing Brian was the old Charles Barkley commercial for Nike when he put out his shoes, um, the I am not a role model commercials. Yep, that's a um, classic, yep. That, I mean, and it, I literally just came from SneakerCon you know, a week ago, and there were posters that say I am not a role model with Barkley's picture on them that they were selling um, to go with buying a pair of Charles Barkley's shoes. And to me, Brian is a lot like one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, Dean Malenko. He didn't quite have this, at least at this point, uh, he didn't quite have that, you know, over-the-top personality that he would later find in his title run. But he wrestled the most beautiful wrestling matches. You didn't ever see him have to think during his matches. Um, you know, and, and to a point, I, when I watched this match back, I wanted to watch it a little differently than I normally would for an honorable mention. In that I was watching it more, not that it was a title match, because we all know how the rain went. We all know what the outcome of the match was before the match took place. Brian wasn't losing. So I watched it for how they presented each other. And I took the title completely out of the realm of the discussion for when I watched it. And I'll be damned, but as much as I criticize Austin Aries on our show... Um, he presents himself like an absolute megastar. His shoulders are always wide. He makes himself look so physically stout that you wouldn't realize he's as small as he is because of the way he carries himself. And Brian does that as well in a different way. Brian promotes instead of like cockiness based on appearance it's confidence based on ability. And I think this is two contrasting personalities colliding. And that's what made their matches together so great and oftentimes more unique. And they're both so smart as wrestlers that they can call back to previous matches and mix in those spots into their, their next match you know, from two or three matches ago. And as we know, at this point especially, Ring of Honor was a DVD product. So, you know, being able to have the fans that were buying every single solitary show and every single DVD to watch, they knew when there was a callback spot to a previous match. Um, I think the crowd was interesting, too, because this is a very different style of match than a they have seen all night uh 
and B than they were used to seeing in main events. Um, Cleveland did a lot of like, especially the Cleveland Indies around this time, you didn't have Johnny Gargano in like present form. Uh, so you had a lot of the old school like WWF names that would come in and sit on top of the card. You know, your Greg Valentine's and Brutus Beefcakes of the world. Right. So that would be your main event type match. Um, not always those two guys, but, you know, similar types, uh, honky tonk man, etc. So, you know, when you're presenting a match like this, I think the fans had to get adjusted to what they were seeing for a, a world quote unquote world title match. Um, and that takes some time, too. But the rest of it felt like a struggle. Um, and Trevor, you used that word, and I think it's such a great way to describe this match because the best matches are, they feel like there is a competitive struggle taking place in the ring. Um, I yeah. love this match. I think it's really, really good. I don't think Brian and Aries ever had a bad match with each other. No. And they probably have had, you know, 25 to 30 matches with each other over the years, um, be it singles, tags, six-man tags, whatever. Um, they always worked so well together, and it's Aries' intensity and and just pace and speed against Brian's, you know, methodical, well-thought-out, hard-hitting, fluid execution of holds. And I just, I have such an appreciation for matches like this. And to think that it happened so often in Ring of Honor, especially in this time frame, we were spoiled. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's funny. There's one guy out there, not the hugest fan of this match, and that would be Brian Danielson. Actually, there is a quote I will read from his book, Yes, by Daniel Bryan. Um, Now, I will point, I'll warn you in this quote, he's saying, talking about a match he had with AJ Styles. I can point to you like four reasons why he must have met Austin Aries. Yes, I am correcting Brian Danielson's own book, but I think it'll become evident once I read this. I'm here for it. So this is the quote from Danielson. My very first championship defense was against AJ Styles, and our rivalry was based on a story about who of us was the better wrestler. We both wrestled on the aggressive side, but at the end of the match, fans were supposed to like the both of us. We had a good match with a decent response from the crowd, but it wasn't what a title match should be as far as crowd reaction. The same happened with the next several title matches, none of which lit lit the world on fire. I knew I needed to change something, or my title reign was going to bomb. So... Obviously, I think he has to have been talking about Austin Aries because AJ Styles, he doesn't wrestle for a bunch more shows. And on top of that, this is his first title defense. And as well, we'll save it for another show. But his next part of his book talks about where he found that um, that that spark was with Roderick Strong. Well, by the time he wrestles Roderick Strong, he it, that's still before he wrestles AJ Styles. So I think pr- pretty clearly he mixed up AJ Styles with Austin Aries. But it's funny that, you know, Daniel's kind of views. I mean, it is true that there was something missing uh, from his, t- from his um, world title run before he found that extra character gear, which we'll get into in future episodes. But at the same time, in the sense that the crowd was into this match and there was a lot working against it from that span. First off, like you were saying, Jeff, you know, the crowd maybe wasn't worth 
the local crowd wasn't used to this kind of match. It's a half an hour main event. Um, it's babyface versus babyface with no, even though they had a lot of history, they've never really had a like hated angle filled feud. It was just the idea of they had wrestled three times in important matches. Aries had won the last two. Danielson, you know, quit Ring of Honor because he lost the last time and then because he couldn't be champ and then came back. But th- there's no real story other. Th- I mean, so in a sense, there's a story, but that's it's a very basic, just results based story. And in addition to all of that, like I think, again, you guys were mentioning, like, I don't think anyone thought Brian Danielson was going to lose his first title defense ever, you know to Austin Aries. So you had a lot of the drama sucked out of it. So there's a lot of reasons why the crowd maybe wasn't going absolutely insane over this match, but they weren't against this match at all. They were, they had a good reaction. I mean, Danielson does say a decent response, which I would agree with, but to be fair, you know, it wasn't a match that was built maybe to have a crazy, Oh my God, you know, clawing at the walls. Also, once Danielson did develop that character, it's not like every single match had much better heat than this. You know, some did, but this was a, pr- I mean, this was a pretty good for, for, for a small crowd. This was a pretty good crowd, re- uh, pretty good crowd reaction for a main event, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And so that brings us to the end of the match. And, uh, we then joined finally in one final segment. We joined Steve Carino backstage. Steve considers himself a pretty smart guy. He's 32 years old, been in wrestling for over 10 years, traveled the world, captured world titles. He again mentions that tonight he thought he was facing Danielson and instead had to work a tag match. He ends his feud. He says his feud with Homicide should have ended at War of the Wire and why Homicide still holds a grudge is beyond him. Krino says the feud is over. He could care less about him, the Rottweilers, or even what's going on with Colt, quite frankly. He cares about the world title. That's it. He says Ring of Honor has been holding him back for seven months, making him a baby face when everyone knows he's at his best, causing problems, making trouble. When you have the answers, I change the questions. Krino says Roddy Piper came up with that line, but he perfected it. He has a world title shot tomorrow in Buffalo and says he made that city. Krino says he needs the Ring of Honor world title because Ring of Honor doesn't want him to have it because then Ring of Honor will be under his control and never be the same. Um... <clears throat> To me, this show was kind of like the good and bad of Steve Carino because I really liked a lot of the funny, fun stuff Carino did early in the show. To me, the negative of Carino and Ring of Honor was sometimes he'd get a little too worked shooty and always do the I'm the enemy of Ring of Honor thing a little too much. And here the whole idea of Ring of Honor made me a baby face, like that's a little too I'm shooting brother on the nose for me. He does that that in like every promo though. Yeah, I know. That's the part (laughs) I don't like is their part. Like I like the, the fun list guy and the, and the joking around with Colton being like, Hey, you didn't tell me about this. That's fun. But the, I'm, you know, everyone, I hate this place. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to form a group called the group. And like, eh, like that's the Crino and ring of honor. I don't like, but we got a little bit of both, I think on this show. So with this promo, there were, a uh, couple things I thought were amusing for all the wrong reasons. But um, number one, you know, he's talking about how if he gets the ROH title, he's in control and he's going to own ROH. Well, that goes back to the old mantra of the early, early days that you guys have covered so well here on through the years of titles equal power in <laughs> ROH. One of my favorite mantras. Like if we still had the t-shirt store, for an honorable mention, there would be a titles equal power, uh, you know, T-shirt. 
Um, and then the other thing that Steve says is be, he says, quote, because of dream stage entertainment and hustle, he got one of Danielson's open title contracts. That is as inside shooty shoot brother, brother, brother as it gets. Um, because dream stage entertainment nearly killed ring of honor, uh, financially when they sued LOL pretend you said 18 video in the early yeah. years for bootlegging, you know, VHS and, and all their shows. Um, so I popped big time for that. Yeah. That, that's um, some real ring of honor employees wearing perverted justice t-shirts to wrestling convention after Rob leaves energy. <laughs> Cause yeah, Gabe went out yeah. of his way to mention, you know, on a different show, I think on the last show when they announced that the Carino match had been signed, like with the help of dream stage entertainment, you know, like they're going out of their way to mention dream stage, which yes, as you mentioned, was the company that once sued Rob Feinstein early in the tenure of ring of honor for, selling pride and you know you know hustle videotapes without um, and the, you know they won i believe a hefty uh settlement fee i mean they they, they were awarded oh, yeah. i think six figures yeah, like and hundred fifty thousand dollars if i remember right or 120 maybe so yeah i wouldn't be shocked if that wasn't a bit of a you know, a little bit of a nudge to rob like hey you know we're in bed with the people that you know took a well, big chunk out of your ass Keep in mind, this is also around the same time that Ring of Honor would do the straight shooting series and they would fly like a, a legend of some sort, you know, like they did with Paul Bearer, uh, Percy Pringle to Unforgettable and have him sit down and do a shoot interview. And then all of a sudden he would also have a shoot interview booked with RF Video that would come out right around the same time. So this is definitely in the shoot interview wars period. Um, and there, there'll be other there, stuff because I there think there's a, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say there, there were at least three off the top of my head incidents that I can recall where within a week of Ring of Honor announcing we're releasing straight shooting with so-and-so, there would be an RF video shoot interview with that same person out. Yeah, and I think there's a show coming up in a, a little ways down the road, but like where certain guys work for Ring of Honor and they were previously booked for a new venture uh, that Rob was associated with, and then they don't show up for that show. Like, PWE. you know, things like yeah, things like that would happen. Where there definitely was bad blood, you know, at this point, that, and they were competing against each other in different ways. But that brings us to the end of the show. That was Enter the Dragon. Uh, guys, you know, Jeff, I guess we should throw it to you. This is the second time you've now reviewed the show. That's why we generally have never asked you guys to guess on the show is just because it seems kind of incestuous to make people review a show that they've done for their own podcast a second time, but it was great to return the favor for your guest appearance. It's all we, you guys do so many different kinds of shows, you know, interviews and, and special topic shows. We just do the one thing, but making you review this a second time. Thank you so much for that. What did, what did you think re reviewing, not just watching this again for the second time in a year, but reviewing this, you were there live. Now you've reviewed it for two podcasts, which you have ever guessed of all shows, this show you've put this much time into. Honestly, um, I'll go back to when this show was announced publicly. Um, I knew maybe a, a couple days, uh, 
Ross from the ROH office let me know that they were running Cleveland on October 14th. I, I think like a couple days before it was put on the website. And I have such hometown pride and home market pride um, that I wanted this show to do well. And 350 or whatever the torch said, I think is a little low. I could be wrong. I mean, I'm not good at attendance. But watching this show a second time, it really made me proud that not only Ring of Honor came to Cleveland and gave it a chance, but put out their best foot forward. And a lot of people look down on Cleveland for some reason. Uh, you know, they refer to it as the mistake on the lake, and, you know, the, the mayor's hair caught on fire because of the toxicity of, of Lake Erie at one point. That's a true story. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I wanted people to have a good impression of Cleveland. And it's very much how I feel about my hometown of Canton. When people come to visit the Pro Football Hall of Fame and all the other things that are going on here, I want them to leave thinking well and thinking positively of where I'm from, because in many ways that's a reflection of, of the type of person that I am and Cleveland getting this kind of show was unheard of like invasion taking place in Cleveland in 2001. That was a huge deal to me and my friends. Like that was maybe and that was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. That was maybe the biggest thing to happen to us over the course of the summer was WWE versus WCW versus ECW. Like, whoa. And it's happening in our backyard. Um, and you also have to remember that 2005 Cleveland, we were dealing with an economic depression. So, for people to be able to come from their lives where they're dealing with a lot of economic stress to enjoy themselves uh, for a night of wrestling, I think that also makes me look back fonder upon this show. Um, on you know, being able to sh to take in this show with my brother um, was also pretty meaningful to me. Um, it just. I look at this show very fondly. It's not the best wrestling show of all time. It's not the best Ring of Honor show to even happen in Cleveland. But it it holds a very special place in my heart because of all of those things combined. And there were two, you know, not only was this like the night before my 20th birthday as well, um, after the show, a couple of the wrestlers got together and, and you know, got me into a place that you had to be 21 after a certain hour. Um, and my brother who, you know, as I mentioned, was like 15 or 16. Um, it, there were just, it was such a, a great collision of events all at once that makes me say like, Hey, this was a fun show. And then I got a speeding ticket on the way home <laughs> on my birthday. Cause it was way after midnight. So well, that'll um, teach you. Yeah. I, I got a lead foot. What can I say? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's important that this memory and these shows and my love for this time period and my wrestling life, um, 
are echoed to as many people as possible. Because I was really fortunate to be able to go to Cleveland and Dayton and Chicago and Detroit, New York and Boston and Philly, you know, as, as often as I did. Um, I, it's just, uh, and, and to be around good people, you know, that locker room for the most part was a bunch of really, really great people. Um, you know, I think the line of the night, uh, we were driving back to my house after the show and, um, I had one of the wrestlers in the car who was going to stay at the house before we drove to Buffalo the next day. And my brother said, why does that guy smell like your bedroom? <laughs> and, uh, well, needless to say, um, yeah, I mean, for, for all these reasons and more, this, this is a special show and I'm glad you guys had me on to review it. And, uh, I could watch this over and over again and especially considering the timing with Jimmy Rave's passing to go back and relive some embassy stuff. Um, it, it means a lot. And, uh, Hey, I love, you know, talking about Cleveland shows and Cleveland, Cleveland, everything. It's Cleveland against the world. Matt, what'd you think about the show? Um, well, you know, I, I always love hearing about, you know, people like who, who go to different shows. You know, I never got out to a show in Cleveland. I know, in this era, they only had what, like five or, or six before they dropped. Six. Yeah, and six. and like you know, it was a good venue, and I you know, and like there were yes, there were Cleveland shows better than this. There were also a couple that were worse. Um, I yeah. you know, it, this this show had to follow a really historic weekend for ROH, and like that's a tough situation to be in. And I think it, it did a good job. Like this was a good show. The only the only real low light for me, and again, like it wasn't super bad, but it was just so disappointing was the. Cabana and Carino against the Rottweilers. Everything else, like, met or to me exceeded expectations. And I just thought it was a really entertaining uh, few hours. I, you know, there were some booking things that we nitpicked, and this is not like the most historically important show, but it's just good, solid ROH stuff. Like, it's just like good wrestling. And it was really great to see Danielson start his title reign. Like, him being there is just adds so much to these shows that we're missing for a while. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the title reign develop. And I, I give this show a thumbs up for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought this was a good, like a good B show, though. Some of the card was pretty strong for a B show, like, but it, it, a good first show in a new market. Um, you know, you had one great match on top. You had a few good matches, and you know, the, you know, it, yeah, I agree. There, there is that one big long disappointment in the middle where even having a match of that quality of the uh, the homicide tag on on a show wouldn't be bad. It's just that you were hoping for so much more. And uh, but other than that, really enjoyable show. And yeah, it's always fun to be in a try, see a new building and know it's in a new market and g- great to finally be on board with the era of Danielson. So that is the show. So it is time for plug. So Jeff, um, right off the bat, why don't you plug everything you've got? Obviously we've talked about an honorable mention a lot on the show, but that and anything else you want to plug. Oh man. Um, this is a lot of pressure because there's a lot of things to plug. Um, so I'll do the selfish thing first and, uh, I will plug my personal Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to hear me rant about how much I hate Baker Mayfield and LeBron James, um, both, you know, Cleveland mainstays for many years. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Jeff Schwartz zero on Twitter and Schwartz is spelled S C H. W-A-R-T-Z. 
I am the proud co-host and co-creator of an honorable mention um, with my co-host Shane Hagedorn of ROH fame and also of the fame of writing uh, Code of Honor, which will be a book uh, coming to your shelves hopefully in 2023 that he's uh, co-authoring with John Snowden. Um, and you can follow Shane at, at Hagedorn Shane and Hagedorn is H A G A D O R N uh, on Twitter. You can follow the show Twitter at an honorable pod and get links to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash an honorable pod. We throw up our show formats Video versions of our show. I give away DVDs from my personal collection that you get to choose if you're a part of certain tiers. Um, there's bonus shows. I have my own little like autobiographical podcast that I do about once every 10 days where I tell some crazy story from my wild and crazy life uh, called Schwartz Stories. That's a part of the $3 tier. Um, and that's patreon.com backslash an honorable pod. Um, and then I don't think I have anything else to plug. You can be my friend on Facebook. Uh, I'm always looking for new people to discuss wrestling and things with. And, um, yeah, I mean, an honorable mention just elected, uh, the third class of the hall of fame of honor, um, that we, we we have Trevor and Matt vote on, um, yep. so that that just dropped, um, and we're we're done for the year as far as the podcast goes. Um, we've got dedicated and battle battle of the icons or whatever the next night was in New Jersey coming up uh, in January, and a lot of it's centered around Hagedorn's AEW and writing schedules and. Um, yeah. So, uh, and then if you're in the automotive industry, I guess I'll throw this in there. <laughs> uh, Empire Data Management. Um, we do name file cleanup for CDK Global, and I am the boss, the owner, operator, and um, I would be happy if you're on CDK to talk to you about your car dealership and save you a ton of money and clean up your data. And for through the years, we don't have a nearly as interesting a level of uh, plugs or as varied, but we do have, as usual, through the years at gmail.com is our email, T-H-R-O-H for through. Um, we have our Twitters at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF. We have uh, our threat at the ProWrestlingOnly.com plugs forum and – Next time on the show, it'll be Matt and I will be back for the new year, and we will be covering Buffalo Stampede, which is Steve Carino versus Brian Danielson. I believe that might have been the first show with you're going to – that might have been the creation of you're going to get your fucking head kicked in as a chant. Um, we'll get Colt Cabana and Low Key in a very interesting clash of styles. We'll see how that turns out as a match. And, of course, a bunch of other stuff. So it'll be great to check that out. So until next time, until next year. Have a good time. Have a great time.